Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast, which delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 195 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we have guest Dr. Paul Saladino and we are talking about flattening the fear in the constructs of the pandemic and we'll also be talking cracking the carnivore code. We covered a lot of ground in this long format episode and we think you're really gonna enjoy all the content we have to share. Such a good episode and for reference points more on this topic, especially with um, regard to carnivore and our thoughts there, you can go back and check out episode 43, which was our recovering from veganism, I think we called it, episode, yeah. um, talking a lot about transition, yes, from, the transition vegan from vegan. <laughs> but the, the true name was maybe recovering, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> recovering from veganism and the importance of actually including animal products in your diet. In 127, we talk in defense of plants, so about some of the plant constituents that are beneficial, but also about some of the anti-nutrients that we'll hear about today. And then most recently, 193, the power of polyphenols and why we love produce. So go back and check those out for sure to get a more balanced and well-rounded approach. Awesome. So before we get into introducing Dr. Saladino, let's talk about our sponsor for today's episode, Fond Bone Broth. So Fond is wellness well made. They make traditional bone broth that is slow simmered using artisanal well water and stainless steel pots and then they bottle the bone broth in these beautiful glass jars. The slow simmering process ensures that you get a hefty dose of gelatin, collagen, and L-glutamine, as well as glycine, very important amino acids to help us to mellow out. Glycine actually supports GABA in the brain to help you find your chill at the end of the day, and glutamine actually is a fuel source for your enterocytes, your gut cells. So literally a facelift for your gut in the jar. They have fantastic elixirs and flavor combinations, which make sipping on bone broth something that's desirable even in the hot summer sun in Texas when we're in the triple digits. So a couple of their flavors here. The Spur is one of our favorites for sure. It has serrano peppers and beets in there. And then also, I'm a big fan of the fennel, apple cider vinegar, and bay leaf combination. Really like your sous chef in a jar. So go on over to fondbonebroth.com, put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, and you will save on your first order and support the Naturally Nourished podcast. Yes, so, so good. I will go ahead and read Dr. Saladino's bio, and then we'll get him on the podcast and get moving. Uh, Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told that their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous podcasts. 
He's also appeared on The Doctor's TV Show and authored the best-selling book, The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. All right. So, Paul, welcome to Texas. Is this your first official interview here? This is my first official in-person interview in Texas. And I decided that in Texas, everybody has their guns out. So I'm going to start the interview with my guns out, too. Well, thank you for wearing a shirt. That was the the great debate. Is is he going to come shirtless? So I feel like we're in a happy medium. Well, tank top look. I mean, we'll see. The shirt probably won't stay on the whole podcast. I'm at least going to do a, a, a wardrobe change. Okay. okay. So, that's yeah. That'll, that'll play. That'll play. And so so what brought you to Austin, Texas? We were curious. You came from California, and we were saying before we started recording that you're originally from the East Coast. Give us a little bit of your breakdown of flow of space and what's brought you to here, where you are now. Ooh. Um, I, think, uh, I think the word is peripatetic. <laughs> I'm a vagabond, and I've always been interested in traveling and seeing new things and new communities and new peoples. and People know my history, they know that before I went to medical school at the University of Arizona, I was a PA in cardiology. So, I mean, I went to college in Virginia at William & Mary. Then I traveled around for six years and was a ski bum and just explored, did the Pacific Crest Trail, saw a lot of the West Coast, ended up going back to school at George Washington for a PA degree, worked in cardiology for four years, quickly discovered that I hated the mainstream medical paradigm and couldn't stand how we were treating all the symptoms with pharmaceuticals that were just ameliorating symptoms and nobody was treating the root cause. And quickly decided I had to go back to medical school, did that in Arizona, then went to residency in Seattle at the University of Washington like we were talking about. And then after spending four years uh, with 90 days of sun per year, and sometimes it was only 87 days of sun, uh, I was like, forget this, I'm going to a southern locale and I wanna surf more, so I went to San Diego. but. After the last 10 months in San Diego, I kind of realized that maybe it wasn't my place and I wanted to try something new. I'm building a new company, which I can tell you guys about, which is super exciting, kind of wrapped around my passions for nose to tail eating and regenerative agriculture. And I had so many good friends in Austin that it just seemed like a community of people who were doing cool things. Awesome. And I kind of maybe, I was like, all right, maybe it's time to be a Texan. So I've done <laughs> yeehaw. some, I done, yeah, yeehaw. I've done some, some hunting out here and I, like I said, I had great community here already and I thought let's go somewhere where um, people are, are I don't know how to describe it and I think that any description I could make of Texas will probably be an overgeneralization it's only my outsider perspective right now because I've only sure. been here two weeks but I just thought I hope people there are more more real and just a little more authentic and that's kind of what I'm here for to be part of a, a community of people who are living in that way and I, I think it, it's true that there's a lot of transplants coming into Austin for more of the sustainability movement there's a big central focus of keto movement and paleo a lot of companies a lot of startups but the texas element i think as well that sings to all of us is the medical autonomy and freedom and i think that that's something that as practitioners is a really important component of course the the limitation of how you can work with your clients and also their autonomy of freedom when we're talking about things like mandated medicine vaccines for one and and that kind of opens the scope of where I want to go with you to open for our, our talk today. Um, I, it, it's been a wild ride, man. <laughs> this whole, I, I, think, I think that so much that has unpacked with the, the pandemic has created a lot of broad strokes of awakening in the sick care system that we, that we all are you know, experiencing. I want to talk today about when did you first uh, see that things weren't lining up? When did you go from 
pandemic, okay, you know, knowing your own immune system, but for the country, the state of the country, you know, how serious we need to take this, what levels should have been employed as far as shelter in place and sterility, and at what point did you start to kind of scratch your head and say, we need to think more radically? I think it was from the very beginning, I mean, which may have been admittedly a little bit naive on my part, but back in February, I was tweeting, I'm not worried about this, I'm not worried about this, and then kind of started to grow and the fervor grew and the fervor grew and then sometime in the middle of March things just tipped in a real big way and I was I was left from the very beginning kind of scratching my head and having a lot of cognitive dissonance because people I was friends with who are intelligent were very worried about it yes. and, and I was thinking am I thinking about this incorrectly why are people so concerned there's a lot of unknowns and so from the very beginning I was just kind of confused by it and whether I wanted to or not kind of found myself thrust into the sort of maelstrom of trying to make sense of up or down yes. or infectivity rates and r naughts and transmission rates and death rates and case fatality rates and you know is it a big deal is it not a big deal who's it affecting more or less and so it's been a like you say it's been a wild ride and a very a very confusing ride and even to this day you know we're recording this you know mid-june in 2020 there's still debate about this and right. you know there, there's new data every day but people are still arguing about this virus and i think that the sentiments are generally kind of shifting but it's very regional yes. and and one of the reasons i came to texas was because it seemed like people here had their head on a little more straight about <laughs> it and there wasn't quite as much fear or there wasn't quite as much infectivity of the fear as yes. there is in california but you know i respect people's right to choose absolutely how they respond to any pandemic but it's it's to me it's a mirroring of what we're seeing with so many health issues where the media is only going to give you one side of it and i just haven't seen a complete picture of it presented by the media, which has been pretty frustrating. Right, we got attacked because in February we put out a podcast and you know talked about the what we had anticipated risk factors were. You know, we always do seasonally how to support your immune system, and we got attacked by uh, I'll, let, I'll leave him unsaid, but some of the calorie in, calorie out camps uh, that I like to call <laughs> anti-science. Um, and uh, you know, saying that oh, how are we capitalizing on this pandemic? And and we kept saying. No, what we're trying to do is put common sense into this pandemic, and the media is trying to drive this fear-mongering response. I've never in my life, which is 35 years of age and not that long, I understand, but when speaking to my parents and others, ever seen a pandemic being sensationalized to the level where every commercial on your television, which we don't watch often, but I was awestruck in March when I turned on my TV, and every commercial had an element of their speech that said, uh, contact list drive-through or you know everything was actually updated to be within the, the narrative of COVID um, everything either had a visual mask or had a we know things are different now and it's hard to adapt to the new normal <laughs> that kind of messaging really freaked me out man and I I had it took me until March 12th was my great awakening because I told my mom on the phone I said I will either be in jail or murdered because I see the truth and I need to speak it I'm not sure how to navigate so I want to thank you, Paul, because your voice and um, Dr. Ben Lynch's voice and Mike's voice all, and, and Ben we've had on the podcast and Mike and I, I've been on his show. It's on our list, though. But, but yeah, we got, we'll get him. <laughs> but all awesome peers where I finally felt like, okay, I can come out with some truth. I can talk loudly anti-mask. I can talk herd immunity. And I can speak my truth. And it's a trembly truth, but there's a, a way to do it. And these guys aren't being you know removed yet from all the space and I need to risk my brand for the integrity of seeing something that's not lining up as a practitioner because at the end of the day if I don't have authenticity and I don't have my character and I see something and I'm not speaking my truth 
then I'm not living my life. But it's very challenging and there's so much nuance. And one of my great disappointments throughout it has been people like this person and many in that camp who have tried to make those of us speaking our truth look bad. And this has been one of my greatest disappointments is people, I don't know whether to call them super trolls or just mudslingers, but there's a large group of people on Twitter and Instagram who seem to have trolled their way to the top. I don't know, it's the top of, it's the top of a pile of poop, I guess. But, you know, like you can, you, we live in such a strange social media environment that you can make a name for yourself by contributing nothing of value. Yes. And all you do is criticize other people, which is what these people are doing. I mean, I look at what a lot of these super trolls, for lack of a better word, or just, you know, super negatively looking people. Like, I look, when was the last time that person contributed a unique idea that made someone's life better beyond calories in, calories out? Beyond <laughs> if it fits your macros, beyond you can eat a Pop-Tart. Right, Beyond right. you can eat half a Pop-Tart. It's like, they're not contributing, like they make their living. All foods fit. All foods fit, right? Com completely. <laughs> you know what I like to say that? Chemical shitstorms have no place in the human body. And we'll talk about what foods are today, I'm sure, and have yeah, some, yeah. some differences of opinion in a respectable manner, but... But uh, yeah, all foods fit is for suckers because chemical <laughs> shitstorms do not belong in the body, period. I, I couldn't agree with you <laughs> more. Foods. It's just so frustrating. Like you don't make, if you're not contributing something valuable, then then shut your mouth, you know? And let, let the consumer decide. And, and the people who have made a living or made a name for themselves by calling out people is just, in my opinion, the lowest form of, of sharing information in today's world. And I don't think it's very, very palatable or very... Very, it doesn't advance the paradigm in any way. So sure. it's, a sh it's a shameful thing in my opinion. And I appreciate your voice in this too. And it's, for me, it was the same kind of thing. It was looking around and going, why do I think about this so much differently than other people and seeing Mike and Ben and other friends and, and they were seeing the same things. Of, okay, I'm not crazy. Right. It's just, we see the world differently. And the lens that I see the world through is similar to yours, which is like, you're not gonna be able to hide from anything. You can't hide from a virus. Like you can't hide from the chicken pox, or you can't, right. we, don't, we don't hide from things in this life. Our ancestors never have hid from anything. You face it head on. And I did a podcast with Kyle Kingsbury, and he had this great sort of uh, analogy or this great imagery of the bison. When they know a storm is coming on the plains, they stand shoulder to shoulder and they go into the storm. And they realize that if they push through the storm shoulder to shoulder, that's the, the fastest way through the storm. If they run from the storm, then the storm just follows them and it's longer. But they just move shoulder to shoulder and they go straight into the storm. And I thought, that's the way we should be living as humans without sure. fear. If there really is a virus on the face of this earth that is strong enough to take you out or to take me out, then let it come. Because I'm not gonna stop living my life. And, right. and I think that that is the antidote to the media fear-mongering that we're not hearing, ever. You just, you can't hide from anything. After coronavirus, there's gonna be something else. And as you've said, as I'm trying to say, the media is just not talking about how to make yourself healthy. It's just all about hide in a cave, go cower somewhere. Totally. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the metabolic disease connection. I think that's been one of our greatest frustrations collectively here. Yes. <laughs> is that we've talked about comorbidities a little bit. There's been a little bit in the media, like that Wall Street Journal um, article on how low carb could potentially protect you from this pandemic. But like initially, I remember seeing in the New York Times, um, all these old people are dying and we don't know why. We don't know why the we don't elderly know why are dying. They're more at risk. Sarcopenia, vitamin <laughs> D deficiency. Right, and so right, right. And Diabetics are dying and we have no idea we why. We have no idea why. And we can't fix it. <laughs> it's a horrible contagious disease. So yeah, give us your spin and yeah. unpack some facts that you've heard from interviews or let's hear some of the kind of big highlight strings of the metabolic connection to this virus and, and the pandemic. And, and as you said, future pandemics, how we become resilient mm -hmm. human beings because that's what we want to shift the narrative to be, of course. 
So if you look at the way that, that humans are, uh, are, are sort of attacked by this coronavirus or the, the human immunologic response to coronavirus and the way what we're seeing, most of it's epidemiology now, but it's the best we have, it looks very similar to what we've seen with the flu. And what I mean by that is what we knew 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was that those with diabetes and insulin resistance, and we can define insulin resistance more granularly in a moment, are much higher risk of severe complications of the flu. We've known that infectious disease is a much bigger problem for diabetics. In medical school, you learn about these esoteric infections like mucormycosis, this fungus, and, and MRSA, you know, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, really something that is much more prevalent and much more severe in people with insulin resistance, people with immunologic dysfunction as a result of being insulin resistant. And that connection doesn't get made a lot. People think obesity, diabetes, and those are not always completely synonymous. But I, this is the first time that I think we've really had to tell people, hey, diabetes equals immune system dysfunction because the this proper signaling of insulin at the level of the immune cells, specifically the T cells and the B cells, is required for the balance of innate and adaptive immune system is required for T helper one, T helper two, T helper 17 balance. And if you, if you are insulin resistant in your body, that is if insulin, this peptide hormone, is not able to signal at the level of its receptor, that receptor exists everywhere. It exists in your brain, the blood-brain barrier, your liver, your pancreas, your muscles, and your immune cells. And so your whole body becomes insulin resistant. And so when we develop this really bad condition of insulin resistance, which, which I've spoken about and which you've spoken about, is really at the center of our current chronic disease epidemic, everything falls apart, every single thing. It's like having a car, and instead of just one part of the car falling apart, like the timing belt, every single thing falls apart. Your carburetor goes, your, you know, the timing belt goes, the exhaust system, everything goes at once, and the car just falls to the ground. All four wheels fall off all at once, and everything rusts immediately, and none of the power windows work anymore at all. Everything falls apart instantly because that one system, it's also connected in the human body. Mm -hmm. In medicine, as physicians, we are taught incorrectly to think about the body as, as systems. And you can, people, they want to say, like, oh, you have a rheumatologic problem, or you have an endocrinologic problem, and it's, it's isolated to your pancreas. So we're going to send you the pancreas doctor or the thyroid doctor. And it's just, it's this constant uphill battle to say to people, they're all connected. And, and it's just, it's like, we're not used to thinking this way because in, in human life with cars or anything else, there are systems that are different. You know, on your computer, right. you can have a hard drive that goes out, but your monitor still works. But imagine if you have a problem on your computer and everything fails all at once. Your monitor blows up, your hard drive fries, your internet goes kaput all at once. It's the same thing in the human body. They're all connected in this web. And it just doesn't really relate to other paradigms that we're familiar with, so it's hard for people to wrap their brain around. But with coronavirus, we have this insulin resistance at the center of it. And there are probably no less than 10 to 12 articles that have been published at this point showing that those with a variety of markers of insulin resistance, whether you want to use triglyceride to glucose index, which is a, a multiple of your fasting triglycerides and your fasting glucose, or your hemoglobin A1C, or your fasting insulin, or your HOMA IR, which is a, another calculated measure, or just your um, fasting glucose or any of these responses that can give you a sense of insulin resistance, all of those uh, are correlated in a negative way with worse COVID outcomes, meaning that those who are more insulin resistant seem to do much worse. And you mentioned there was an article in the, in the Wall Street Journal. Well, that was written by Nina, Nina Teicholz. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the Wall Street yeah. Journal talking yeah. right, about it. Right. It was an op-ed yeah. piece by Nina Teicholz. So that's well, we were grateful it was published. Yes. It was published. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was surprising that it got published. But you know, I've seen not one single news media outlet talking about this. Right. And I've seen not one single news media outlet like the New York Times saying this. I mean, to me, this is front page news. Right. Like, and, and then conversely, 
and you guys have probably highlighted this as well, what I have seen are news media, media articles saying it's okay to stress eat in the pandemic. Right. Yeah. So much of that. And, oh my gosh. Right? <laughs> and then I see so many pictures of medical residents and doctors on the front lines, food fueling Getting us to donuts. fight COVID. Do <laughs> co mm -hmm. Yeah, donuts <laughs> and pizza. You know, pizza helps us fight coronavirus. Donuts help us fight coronavirus for you. And it's great that they're on the front lines helping patients, but at the same time, the messaging is completely messed up right now. I mean, right. and that, that's just been so strange for me. Like, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and no one is talking about this glaring inconsistency. This is completely fixable. Mm -hmm. And then I've spoken on a few podcasts. I did one with Asim Malhotra, who's a cardiologist in Britain, who bravely came out and challenged the prime minister there, who was obese, to change his diet. And the prime minister of Britain had a pretty severe course of COVID. And everybody looks at him, his name's Boris Johnson, and goes, right. oh, Boris Johnson's young and healthy. And we kind of scratch our heads and go, I think he's about 30 pounds overweight, you know? And we can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure he's insulin resistant, right? And so in that podcast with him, I talked about, there's a study from, I think it's you know early 2000s that Robert Lustig did on obese children. And you can remove high fructose corn syrup from their diet and re isocaloric replacement. Yes. You know, no Triglyceride, right. dynamic marker changes. All the markers of insulin resistance change in nine days. And to me, this flies wildly in the face of the calories in, calories out hypothesis. These kids are isocaloric. Yep. Isocaloric. I've seen people on Twitter arguing and saying insulin. That means same calorie intake. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Sorry, we're getting kind of granular, <laughs> no, no, no. you guys. It's good. It's good. Um, but you know, I've seen people on Twitter arguing. It's not surprisingly, it's some of the same camp of people who are anti-science. You know, and, and really just trolling. They're saying insulin resistance is related to uh, you know nutrient excess and and hypercalorie intake. How many papers do you want? And I think that's completely in, that's completely incorrect. Yes, if you overfeed someone calories, you can create insulin resistance. That doesn't mean that's the only way to get insulin resistance. And there are plenty of studies like this that show that with the same amount of calories between these kids, and you simply remove one, one sort of uh, chemical, this high fructose corn syrup, this processed fructose from their diet, they become more insulin sensitive in nine days, and they're isocaloric. So it has to be about more than just calories. And aside from a research study in a real-life application, the satiety that you get from whole real food, Absolutely. it is almost impossible to gorge versus an empty calorie, calorie-laden processed product. Because of the incretins. Right, and, right. so you're not getting your leptin response. You're, you're dealing with leptin resistance with your insulin resistance, and it's a whole cascade. Um, aside from just generalized diet application, uh, I want to talk a little bit about vitamin D because I know you've done a lot on that and I was interested in your conversation about the sun and skin cancer and what the true risk factors are there and do you feel that the biggest influence of vitamin D is the insulin resistance piece or is it the multi-mechanistic elements of vitamin D that, that there are to offer for COVID and, so and you know immune health in general? This is similar to the insulin resistance idea that this is another thing the media has not talked about much at all. Right. And the, the figures are almost the same. It's about 10x worse outcomes. And Medicare doesn't reimburse vitamin D testing, which is really important to have. We're talking about a broken system. Wow. Isn't that wild? Medicare does not reimburse vitamin D testing. So you have to advocate and request it. And for people that are financially you know, inept or you know, dealing with financial hardships, they have to pay out of pocket to find their number and then understand if supplementation should be applied. And, and I, this whole time I've been saying, if we really were looking to support our country's wellness, everyone would get distributed vitamin D supplementation, at least as a basic. It would be a good start. Yeah, a start. But part of the conversation around vitamin D is whether that's enough, and we can talk about that. 
But what we know from the epidemiology is that those with vitamin D levels, this is 25-hydroxy vitamin D in the serum, above 30 nanograms per milliliter, have a 10 times better, you know, and conversely, 10 times better outcome with COVID. Conversely, those with the more sort of illustrative statistic would be those with levels less than that do 10 times worse or get severe coronavirus outcomes with COVID-19 10 times more frequently. That's a striking statistic. That should be at the headline news. It's now June. Every single person in the country should be told, go outside and get sun and play with your kids. You're not gonna get coronavirus outside. There have been plenty of studies which show that the transmission outdoors is essentially non-existent. You're not gonna get coronavirus in a park. You don't need to wear a mask in a park. You don't need to wear a mask on your bike. We can talk about all that. You don't need to wear a mask. Or running. <laughs> you don't need to wear a mask running, right? You don't need to do those things, but go outside and get in the sun, which is there are things from the real sunlight that are independent of 25-hydroxy vitamin D that are also beneficial for humans. And why is that not surprising? We've evolved in the sun. This is just a purely ancestral paleo perspective that makes tons of sense. And I've talked about this on a number of podcasts, whether this is endorphins, nitric oxide, cholesterol sulfate, other compounds that we're not aware Somebody of. with grounding because you're out in nature when yeah. you're in the sun, you know, that has to have an electrical influence as well. Yeah, but I think that, so what I've been telling people is go in the real sun. And I spoke in detail on a podcast with Mark Bell that I did about some of the literature surrounding skin cancer and how there is good literature to suggest that, that long-term chronic low-level sun exposure is associated with lower rates of melanoma. Everyone worries about melanoma. That's the worst cancer, but melanoma is not really a sun-associated cancer. People get melanoma on the bottom of their feet and on their low back, places that are not exposed to lots of sun, or they'll get it like, you know, you can get melanoma on your tongue. You sure. can get retinal melanoma, right? So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to get melanoma that, that it's not really a sun-associated cancer, and the rates are lower in those who get mild exposure. Now, the flip side of this, without getting too granular, is that the other two sun-associated, the other two cancers of the skin are uh, squamous, squamous, and basal, and those do appear to be higher with sun exposure. Now, the further level of nuance there is whether that's related to vegetable oil consumption. I think it's very possible that, that yes, if you're in the sun and you're packing all the cell membranes of your, you know, barriers of your, <laughs> your, of cell your cells walls. with polyunsaturated fatty acids from corn, canola, soybean uh, oils, and peanut oils, that those are more likely to be oxidized from the solar radiation and. This is something that needs to be studied, and, uh, and there are studies that do correlate higher intake of vegetable oils with more skin cancer. And then furthermore, I know I'm in a rabbit hole, you guys, here, but I'm sorry. I'll get out of it in a second. Furthermore, there's a compound called sorolins, and those are present in some plant foods. And you guys know I'm kind of interested in plant toxins and how people react to them kind individually. Of. <laughs> kind of interested in plant toxins. Tread lightly, brother. <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> but sorolins, I mean, this is, you know, I don't think anyone's done the studies to fully associate with this, but we give sorolins to people who have psoriasis, um, and, and then they get ultraviolet therapy. And after that, there is a higher incidence of skin cancer. So the concern is that some of these plant molecules might also intercalate in the DNA the, of the skin cells and cause higher rates of mutations or or damage when it's exposed to the sun. Regardless, I think that the way we live our life also affects our tolerance of the sun. And this is none of this is considered by the dermatologic community. If they have their way in Western medicine, they're gonna say never go in the sun, wear sunscreen, which is full of xenoestrogens, mm -hmm. parabens, phthalates, things which are excreted in the urine in the stool, which we know we absorb. Um, wear those all the time, every single day, and just take a vitamin D pill. And I've been concerned that's probably not good enough for all these other reasons. So anyway, that was, that's yes. the vitamin D spiel. <laughs> and, and I would probably take the camp of, of both sides of the spectrum of use supplementation to get your levels above 50, 
and get out in the sunshine. It's about 30 minutes to get 10,000 IUs of vitamin D in a healthy liver kidney system and in an individual that doesn't have dark melanin in their skin. So there's a lot of factors, and I think that getting the vitamin D up is optimal. Using nature as the primary source is the priority for sure. But I do think there is space for the supplementation to get you there, especially in a time of immune risk. I think there's not a lot of downside to using the twenty the, the vitamin D three, which is cholecalciferol. Especially with K one, K two, MK seven blend. Yeah, it's probably not a it's probably not a lot of downside to that. Um, we just need to be aware because the, right. that would be the thing to evaluate. You know, is there a downside to supplementing with vitamin D three? A lot of people end up on vitamin D two which is ergocalciferol, and I don't think you'd want to do that. No. That's derived from a fungus, not a, not a good totally. thing. Not totally. used in the same way. But this point came up in a recent podcast I did, and it's just the, the, the nuanced perspective that don't let that substitute for real science. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Because like we said, it's a multi-mechanistic impact of being outside. You are being in, inundated with nature. You're going to be more parasympathetic. You're going there. There is a multi-mechanistic element, and that's what always goes to this root cause of how can you get a multiple of benefits from one intervention versus just a sole myopic impact. So on that vein, let's talk vaccines. Let's talk uh, herd immunity, and then um, I want to talk a lot more about cracking the carnivore code with you. But uh, if we're talking about the idea of, and maybe before we go to the big V word, let's talk first about this idea of shelter in place sterility, because we haven't talked about sterility factor, and I'd really like to have a nice conversation there, and, and then I want to open into herd immunity. So what are your concerns? I mean, I've seen things where in April, moms were spraying their kids with cans of Lysol um, on the way to school. And what I'm concerned about is the fact that the media is portraying that, and they're not having then a medical professional say, Please do not do that. You know, we've heard our president say something about injecting something Lysol into your skin, you know. So we're hearing <laughs> weird messages, and I know <laughs> that hopefully the general consensus is that that's bad. But what about, you know, using Clorox more frequently in your household versus just a good old, you know, water wash on, on your produce? What about this low gene movement? Because I still am rubbing the bruise on my head from the cognitive disconnect of every morning waking up and being like, no, not again, <laughs> uh, you know? And so I've got some cover up on my uh, bruise here still. But, but what do you feel in the sterility? Where, what is it, where is that going to put us? How do we undo that? And, and what's the importance of having a robust microbiome? I think it's, it's so much of this for me just keeps coming back to these ancestral perspectives and which is why I so appreciate this community and your perspectives as well. And I think that we'll, we'll, we'll learn the easy way or we'll, we'll learn the hard way. And you can't run from nature, you can't hide from nature. And you know, study after study shows that a lower diversity of your GI microbiome, of your oropharyngeal microbiome, of your nasal microbiome, of your dermatologic microbiome, you pick the microbiome, right? Vaginal microbiome, every single microbiome that we have, a lower diversity is a bad thing. I did a podcast with Ben. We talked about people using nasal steroids and other oh. drugs, and it lowers the, the microbial diversity of the nasopharyngeal cavity, meaning the nose and throat cavity, and that leads to an increased susceptibility to viruses, sure. right? So, okay, <laughs> let's just, okay. Now, what we're doing now with tons of hand sanitizer and over-sterilization is exactly that. Uh, one of the most striking things that I think I've heard, I don't remember where, was that people who use dishwashers have a lower diversity of their gut microbiome. Petting a dog increases the diversity of your microbiome. Being outside, being in the sun is associated with a higher diversity of your microbiome. Now, we don't know what that is. Is it sunlight? 
Soil-based organisms. Soil-based organisms, right? But what we know is that living a life that's just simple, the way that our ancestors lived, repeatedly is the best idea. And that includes touching people and yeah. breathing in symbiosis yeah. with other people, right? Yeah. I mean, and dogs, and you know, Joel Salatin was recently on Joe Rogan, and I just had to laugh. He said that he gets down in the cow trough and drinks the water that the cows are drinking <laughs> with like all the cow saliva. Oh yeah, the, they, they drool a lot. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay, that's a little intense, but you know, he's in the dirt. And if you guys have been to a farm or you've been yeah. camping, you know that when you're camping. You get dirt under your fingernails. Oh man! Just camping and eating Eyelids food. Eyelids. Yeah, everywhere. I, every you're gonna take in more microbial organisms. Is it any wonder that we have increasing rates of IBS and inflammatory bowel disease and a decreasing microbial diversity because we live in these super sterile environments and we always look um, to the people who are living these ancestral lives, these currently living hunter gatherers, and say, look at those incredible, incredibly diverse microbiomes, whether it's the Hadza or the Ikung or an undiscovered tribe in the Amazon. And then we go to our sink and use Purell to Purell to like wash our hands, and, and we don't, we, we just can't. There's so much cognitive dissonance, and so much of this has been lost. And so yes, the over sanitization, Lysol, hand sanitizers, many of these are full of parabens and phthalates and xenoestrogens. We'll learn. We'll just learn the hard way eventually. But I do think it's a problem, and I think that, you know, if you're around someone that's sick and you don't want to get sick, fine, wash your hands. You know. But at the same time, we're finding more and more data about you know, rates of transmission on fomites of viruses, and it comes back to the same thing, like you can't hide from a virus. Right. And we didn't really go over this at the beginning of the podcast, but if you look at all the models, if you talk to really any virologist on either side of the issue, and I don't think enough of them have been pressed on this, or immunologists, it's really pretty hard to argue against the fact that most of us are gonna get exposed to most viruses during the course of our lives. SARS-CoV-2 is a type of coronavirus that was discovered in 2019, but it's not going away. Right. And it's going to be recirculating throughout the whole globe. We have to remember that this global pandemic happened with 20 infections in China. And so New Zealand is now saying, we have completely eradicated coronavirus. And it's like, that's, a com that's such a false, misunderstood statement. Are you saying you're going to close your borders and you're never going to have anyone from the rest of the world ever fly to New Zealand again? Sure, if you want to live on an island and you've eliminated coronavirus or any virus, that virus will probably never be there unless you're getting it from a bird flying over and pooping on your head, yeah. transmitting this virus, right? <laughs> but otherwise, you know, coronavirus will be in New Zealand again. Mm -hmm. It will be. And the way these viruses spread is massively misunderstood. And so if you look at the two curves that were so widely shown at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think have kind of been silenced now because people are not really wanting to talk about flattening the curve anymore right. because they've, they've just wanted to move on to a different goal now, which is eliminate the infection completely or stay locked down forever. But the area under both of those curves, whether it's a steep curve, like a tall top hat or a wide brimmed hat on the two curves that you're looking at is the same. And that x-axis is the number of people who get exposed to the virus or the number of people who contract the virus. And so I, I just don't think that there's, there's, no, there's no epidemiologic, there's no public health measure that I've ever been aware of short of locking everyone in a, in a, in a bubble or a cargo container for the next six months that's going to be able to change the overall number of people who are exposed to this virus. And that's a really important point to make because if, if everyone's gonna get exposed anyway, we have a different goal. It's how strong are you gonna be when, it, when, when you get exposed to it and how strong are you gonna be when you get exposed to the next thing rather than there's just this really insidious media messaging that we're gonna hide from it and it's mm -hmm. gonna be gone. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be gone and that's gonna segue into our conversation about herd immunity. Exactly. But it, it's, a, it's very subtle messaging now and I think that this over sanitization is, is a very dangerous thing to get into and I fear that we're going to have so much PTSD from this pandemic oh. that people are going to be doing this for years mm -hmm. and years and the next generation of children 
is going to have a less diverse microbiome and, a, and more allergies and more autoimmunity and more problems and we're not gonna people are not gonna make that connection and less empathy and less humanity unfortunately <laughs> no really I mean that's what I've been really advocating for once those CDC guidelines came out on May 19th about the back to school plan and I know that's not your wheelhouse probably but it is absolutely disturbing um, talking about at age two and above band-aided masks talking about closing of cafeterias, closing of playgrounds, no collaboration, discourage sharing. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I, I opt out, I choose no. And my, what I, my, I've been sharing with my audience is, if you're still wearing a mask and you show up on day one, this is July, you know, we're going into July here, and this is the policy that's being made for back to school for fall. You know, it's gonna be decided in July what happens in August when schools are opening, and some schools are opening in July. And if you're showing up, walking around, wearing a mask, dropping your kid off at school, you are speaking to the narrative that is buying in to that bullshit. I'm sorry, but you are. You can't expect to wear a mask and drop your kid off at school and not be signing off on the waiver that they're going to be asked five questions every day before they walk into school. That's so dehumanizing. Have you traveled outside of the U.S.? Nope, it's Wednesday. No, um, I was here yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> until 4.30, but I'm seven. But why don't you go ahead and ask me these five dehumanizing questions like I'm in prison. I'm, this is serious policy, and I, I've, my mind, it, obviously it's a passionate thing, I get worked up talking about this, because it's just, it's just such cognitive dissonance. It, it, it is mind-blowing, and my fear is, kind of full circle with this, that when we look at lobbyists in government, the highest lobbyist distribution, when we're talking about oil and gas and all these other industries, is pharmaceuticals, right? Disproportionately. And when we look at public policy, I think that we can say that public policy on nutrition has broken our metabolic health. I mean, we all very clearly say that. So when you, I mean, not to be too conspiracy theory pushed, but if you look at big pharma and we look at food politics and we look at who's funding subsidies of these industrialized rancid oil-based crops, which are ubiquitous in any processed food, we're talking corn, soy, canola, right? Why not tell us to shelter in place so that we can be saved, so that we're handcuffed and weak, and here we are, we need you to intervene. Um, and so that's my question as far as this herd immunity thing and vaccines. Let's talk about wild mutation. Let's talk about how, for people that don't understand the mechanisms, and we've talked about adjuvants, I don't, you don't need to go down that rabbit hole, I don't need you to go there. Um, I know everyone likes to tread lightly on this topic, but, uh, how a vaccine is myopic versus, you know, it's this myopic one directional arrow, if you will, or, or, or bullet, I want to say, or dart. And how does that make sense as opposed to supporting the whole system? Right. I think that's a great point. Vaccines are analogous to band-aids. They're analogous to pharmaceuticals that treat a symptom and don't treat the root cause. Now, it's a complex issue. And I think that there are people passionate on both sides of this issue. And, and I've found myself um, kind of in the middle of it, trying to be, trying to be very considerate of both sides. I cannot deny that there are kids out there that get harmed by vaccines, and I wish that the mainstream media would wake up to that. Just admit that there's one child in the world that got harmed by a vaccine, right? Because if there's one child in the world that got harmed by a drug, they're gonna say, hey, that kid got harmed by a drug. This drug has side effects, and they're gonna admit that. And they're gonna think, how do we protect that kid, or how do we, you know? But we know there are hundreds or thousands of children that have been harmed by vaccines. Now, it's not to say every child that gets a vaccine gets harmed, right? right? right. Because just like every, ch every person that takes a drug doesn't have a huge bad side effect, but with drugs that cause thousands of side effects in humans, there are, there are conscientious efforts to protect those who may be most susceptible. We will be thinking about it. 
But we don't do that with vaccines. And that, to me, is a little bit of a disconnect. It's a double standard. Now, the other side of the issue is that I think we have to always be careful to say, what good have vaccines done? Have they done good? And I think that that, that issue for me is a, little bit, is a little bit more nuanced. You know, I think that we live in large populations now that are clustered, right? And, you know, ancestrally, we probably would not have been in groups of more than 150 or 30 or 70. And even with animals, we know now that there are predators that take out the weak animals or that if animals get to be in groups get to be too big. Confined, yeah. Yeah, things come along and they kill off the group. So if we choose to live in large groups of humans in large cities, I think we have to entertain the possibility that there could be some benefits to vaccines as well for protecting the group. Now, it's a, it's a complex thing, but I think the overarching idea is, is a really important one which you bring up, which is that regardless of whether we think there's a benefit of vaccines, they're not correcting any root cause, right? right? And, and a coronavirus vaccine for an illness, for a virus that clearly targets those who have low vitamin D, worse nutritional status, and worse insulin resistance is exactly that. It's just, it's just a Band-Aid. It's, it might protect you against coronavirus if we can develop a vaccine that is safe and tolerable. It might protect you against coronavirus. But your insulin resistance will continue, and the next infection will get you. Right. And so we're just left with this kind of domino effect cascading down and saying, well, you're going to get mucormycosis, or you're going to get an amputation in your foot because you're going to get gangrene, or you're going to get the next, or you're going to get a bad flu the next year, and you're going to die from that anyway. And this is my concern that we are using these things philosophically in an incorrect way. We're not actually, we're just band, we're just, I mean, if we could see how many band-aids we're putting on the arm, it's like having an arm with 20 band-aids on it, right? We're just covering up a band-aid on top of a band-aid on top of a band-aid. In medicine, we do this all the time. We give a drug to treat a side effect of another drug that we right. gave. Right? And so, you know, like, the idea is, if insulin resistance is making you more susceptible to coronavirus, fix the insulin resistance. And if we can develop a vaccine that's totally safe, then maybe we should have a conversation about it for those who are most susceptible. Uh, but at the same time, like, fix the insulin resistance. And my fear is that the vaccine comes along and the insulin resistance conversation gets, gets forgotten. And even if the vaccine doesn't come along, the, the insulin resistance conversation will likely be forgotten because, and you bring up this very important point that I wanted to make earlier, I fear, and this is not to sound conspiratorial, but I think that in today's climate we have to say these things because of pharma. And you know, in, in the most recent podcast I did with um, Jack Wolfson, we were talking about the actual amount of pharma funding for commercial ads on television. And I couldn't find any current ad numbers, but they were on the order of $4 billion. $4 billion direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising in 2018. So it, you know, it's got to be billions of dollars more than that. We're talking billions of dollars of direct-to-consumer advertising. And the statistic that I really wanted to know was what proportion of any network's news network ads are pharma. Mm -hmm. Because can you imagine the disincentivization to talk about insulin resistance or vitamin D or food when you're funded by pharma? or an alcohol company, right? right? So if you're funded by Budweiser or an alcohol company, and we might as well just lump in Budweiser with pharma because in the same, you know, alcohol is a pretty similar mechanism to a benzodiazepine, and I think alcohol is pretty close to a pharmaceutical in today's you know, world. So if we combine the budgets for alcoholic drinks and, and actual pharmaceutical drugs, and you think, wow, we, don't, we, we really can't talk about these things on the news. We can't talk about these things. And then, and then the really scary question gets to be, how much nefarious backroom dealing is there? You right. know? And we don't really know as mainstream consumers, we don't really know if the news networks are being told, don't run the story about diabetes. We, we really want to run, run an ad about 
pioglitazone. We want to run an ad about Humira. Yeah. You know, don't run an ad about, you know, don't, don't talk about the connections between food and autoimmunity because we want to advertise Humira. And that, that's, that's the scariest part of it, and we can't really know what's going on there, but I think it's a real possibility. And then on the platforms that are supposed to be freelance, even these now are being cherry-picked, as you know, we heard with YouTube, you know, removing space of things that don't comply with, with the narrative. said agents. I've had, I've had multiple videos removed from my YouTube channel. There's snippets of podcasts I've done. I had a, a snippet um, with Ben Lynch, and I was talking about glutathione for coronavirus. We give people N-acetylcysteine in the hospital when they get Tylenol right. poisoning. Yep, yep. GGT's up. Right. <laughs> Here's N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor for glutathione. Glutathione is a completely safe intervention for coronavirus. It's not going to hurt anyone. It's pretty damn safe. You can take it orally or you can take it IV, and YouTube removed it for violating community guidelines. We said, hey, here's an article. We were showing literature that says that people with lower glutathione status or an increased ratio of oxidized to reduced glutathione, meaning that they had more oxidative stress. We, I had a paper that showed multiple cases of people with worse glutathione ratios, had worse COVID outcomes, and said, wouldn't it be reasonable to take some glutathione if you had corona? Like, let's take this compound that your body makes. It would be like taking a moderate dose of vitamin C. Right. Right, which we, you know, and it got removed from YouTube. And it's like, that's not part of the narrative now. And any of the videos I've done that have really said, strongly the lockdown was not effective or maybe we should question social distancing get removed from youtube and you think okay <laughs> like i'm just talking about literature here right right yeah and then i had a video that talked about the lack of transmission of an asymptomatic case of coronavirus that came out recently it was someone that was asymptomatic they contacted 455 455 people yeah. and they traced the transmission and they didn't didn't look like the person transmitted it to anyone and i was talking about a literature study published I believe it was even peer-reviewed. Many of the coronavirus studies now are not peer-reviewed because they're getting published so quickly. But I believe this one was even peer-reviewed and it got censored by YouTube. And you think, that's just too much. Like anything yes. that counteracts your mainstream narrative isn't, isn't allowed to be heard? That's crazy. Well, and with the back-to-school stuff, there's a lot of filtering of information because the flu actually affects children and infants higher than right. COVID. And so when I'm speaking about the back-to-school guidelines and how this is asinine, uh, because this pandemic is lower risk for mortality for our children, and now there's that added point of asymptomatic carriers, because that's the whole argument, right? If asymptomatic carriers can't kill grandma and grandpa, said children should have a normal school year like any other school year because they're at a lower mortality risk than the flu. And that's been shown in, in other countries. I think it was Norway or Denmark. Uh, I talked about a published study, that, or maybe it was Ireland. They let the kids go back to school, and they didn't see a spike in coronavirus right. infections. So... It's very clear. And just that those dealings of pharmaceuticals are just kind of scary right now. And the fact that are our news networks being muzzled or is someone really saying, hey, this is what you can talk about and this is what you can't. That's so. why we have to be the buffalo man. We're the, bu we're the bison. We're the bison. <laughs> Straight into the storm. We'll have to see if this uh, Is that the sound of buffalo man? <laughs> <laughs> my, my bison barks. My bison's like, <laughs> This is my most prime. Where's your four-year-old? Let's ask the four-year-old. She probably She probably that, would know. What sound does a bison make? Bison sounds. Yeah. yeah, there's actually a funny backstory because uh, Becky's pregnant, and <laughs> clearly, uh, and we always said that her baby's name was Bison. So it's kind of funny. Maybe yeah. this is it. It's not though. He's gonna We're go not. through the storm. What about, no. Is it a boy or a girl? Boy. What about ribeye? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's we're talk real, as we're as we're yeah. closing uh, COVID speaking. I want to get into all carnivore things. Let's talk herd immunity because the, the thing that we get pushed back or I get pushed back when I'm speaking out about, about herd immunity is, hey, 
you're the same person that's acknowledging how Americans are metabolically dysfunctional or metabolically handicapped or you know don't have systems to support healthy immunity. And yet we know that we need 70% of the population infected to ensure that we're gonna get herd immunity. How, how do the statistics add up? I'd love to hear your feedback on yeah, that. Yeah, we don't know how much of the population needs to get herd immunity. This is the sort of the great misunderstanding as you'll hear immunologists, and I'm not a classically trained immunologist or a virologist, I'm not claiming to be, but I am a physician, and I see numbers anywhere from 20 to 30 to 70% for herd immunity, and the other confounding factor here is that the whole discussion of herd immunity now, I think, is, is irrevocably flawed uh, because we don't have a gold standard test for coronavirus exposure or immunity. Uh, the RT-PCR of the back of your throat is only going to detect currently reproducing virus and RNA there. There were a lot of false positives of that and people who just had dead virus there and people were saying, and then there was media fear-mongering around recurrence of coronavirus. You can get it twice and no, you, it's just false positives. Okay, so the RT-PCR test isn't really that valuable for someone that's been exposed if the virus is no longer in your posterior pharynx. And so now everyone's talking about antibody testing, either IgG or IgM. But what we're also learning is that not everyone who comes in contact with the virus gets IgG or IgM antibodies. Mm -hmm. And that is a very confusing thing. And then there was a recent paper in Cell that got published that I've been talking about where many, there, there appeared to be immune cell reactivity to SARS-CoV-2 in people who had never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And what that means is that previous exposure to homologous viruses mm -hmm that look the same, maybe is priming the immune system of some people. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it's a very interesting idea that either another coronavirus, I mean, coronaviruses, we all get exposed to them. Right. You and I, all three of us have been exposed to probably 10, 100, who knows how many coronaviruses we've been exposed to in our life. And if one of those coronaviruses had a, an M spike or an S protein that looked like SARS-CoV-2 and our immune system responded to it, and it's gonna have to do with our own genetics, could my immune system already have uh, B cells or T cells or even dendritic cells which will recognize coronavirus? We don't have to mount the same immune response. It's a very interesting thing. We don't have to make this antibody. So that would totally change the equation around herd immunity because there's a lot of discussion now. People are saying herd immunity is a joke. Uh, Spain, has, Spain has like less than 5% of people who are positive uh, for the antibodies. And, other, and so they're saying, and the reason they're saying this is you need to still be afraid. Right. You need to still be afraid because only 5% of the population in Spain has antibodies. And you think, well, that's predicated on the notion that the antibody test is perfect and that everyone who's been exposed is going to develop antibodies. And everyone's been tested. Right. Which they haven't. Right, population. right. But in population samples, you hope to be able to take a swath and, and make some, some correlation. But again, it's more fear-mongering. But what just, what the big disconnect for me is, if that's the case, and many of these countries have eased their lockdown, why are deaths not rising? If it's true that only 5% of the population or 3% of the population actually had been exposed to coronavirus and you reopen the country, you should see deaths just wildly spike. But what we see in every single country, I can't say every single, but almost all the countries I've looked at, if you follow the death rate, you see the exact, you see a very, very similar curve. It's called the FAR curve, yep. F-A-R-R. And it shows, a, it's kind of a, a bell-shaped curve. And it goes up and then it comes back down. And across the US, across Europe, Western, Eastern, across the northern hemisphere, we are seeing the same curve. And that to me suggests that there is something going on at an immunologic level. We would see deaths rising wildly if there was not a much greater herd immunity than we are being told about. And I think that it's just that we don't have a great test. 
Yes. Because the immune system is complex and we really can't even rely on the antibody test anymore because we don't have a gold standard. We don't know what the false negative rate is. We don't know what the sensitivity of that test is. We don't know the specificity. We don't have these because we can't calculate them without a gold standard. So if you look across the United States at different states, the death rates are not spiking. And there are thousands of people protesting in the street in Los Angeles and other countries uh, and other states like because of the racial stuff going on now. And if that were truly the case, that only 3 or 5% of people in this county have been exposed, you, I really believe, I can't wrap my head around any explanation for any, any other consequence of just seeing rapidly increasing numbers and you're not seeing it. Mm-hmm. There has recently been a whole lot of fervor. Cases are spiking in Arizona. Yes. We're putting the hospitals on red alert. We're going to get overwhelmed. And you look at the deaths, there were three deaths in Arizona, two deaths in Arizona. And then, you know, their, their, their peak of deaths was 25 a day. So they're, they're, at a ten, they're, they're not peaking in deaths. I looked at it yesterday. You know, June 9th, there were two to three deaths of coronavirus in Arizona. And so the cases are rising because we're testing more. And we're focusing, that's such media manipulation of numbers. We I were focusing so. initially when testing wasn't accessible on only mortality, and then the skew got shifted to caseload. When testing, is, you know, so it's like, let's use, now that the mortality is going down, now let's talk about the volume of, of individuals that have it. When was the last time you heard somebody talk about case fatality rate? Right. We not, talk about it a lot. Not since, <laughs> right. not, yeah. a, not, not since it dropped below 0.5%. Exactly. Not since it started to look a lot like the flu. Yep. You know, we haven't heard anyone talk about case fatality rate, which looks to be around 0.3 or 0.3, yeah, 0.2 yeah. to 0.3, right? On the same order of magnitude as a seasonal flu, no one has talked about case fatality rate in six weeks because it doesn't, it doesn't spike fear into anyone's heart. All they're talking about is new cases. Arizona's spiking in cases. They declare a state of emergency. All the hospitals are on red alert. But there's only two deaths. So you can still watch. I mean, it's evolving in real time. And maybe yeah. if Arizona, you know, for the next week gets 20 deaths a day, then you say, I, I say, look, I was wrong. You can see it. That, that actually happened. Maybe Arizona didn't have herd immunity. But that's the thing to watch. And what I'm seeing right now is that's not happening. And if we continue to see this, and it's happening in Spain, Italy, Sweden, every single country I've looked at in, looked at in the Northern Hemisphere in the, in the European Union, the cases are coming down. And then the narrative is they're not reporting it accurately. And I think, well, then... What are we even talking Why about? Are talking yeah, anyway. Why are we talking numbers? Why are we? Somebody sent me an article from The Economist and uh, saying that you know Turkey didn't do as stringent a lockdown and their numbers, their death rate numbers were much lower yes. than Britain. And then and then someone else sent me a comment that said, well, Turkey is not reporting their numbers properly. And I was like, well, are any of us? I don't, <laughs> we don't know. I don't know if the U.S. <laughs> is reporting the numbers properly either. So well, what, you know, Aunt Sue, and no disrespect to Aunt Sue, but who had you know COPD and was hospitalized six mm. times mm-hmm. within the last three months died with COVID, not of COVID. And there's that too. So, you know, I mean, anyway. And then there's, yeah, (laughs) there's lots of discussions. And I think that a lot of this is, it's like everything else. Um, It's, and this is probably our challenge to make this clear for people. You know, not everyone is 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 in medicine or a scientist. And so, and I'm not an economist. So if I'm gonna hear about economics, I'm hoping that an economist can make it very clear to me. And maybe that's our challenge to make this as clear to people as possible. But I, I think there's a lot of nuance here that I've worked toward making more clear to people. That's been challenging for me because then the numbers, if you look at the numbers of seasonal flus, so I did a podcast with Kirk Parsley, who's also here in Austin um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he was showing that when there is a severe flu season one year, the next flu season is usually much lighter because take out the moderately weak and those yeah. I mean it, it sounds so insensitive that's been the thing that I've been trying to navigate right. is being fact-based right when we're talking about quantitative 
numbers, and I'm not saying when we're saying something was insignificant, you're talking about an insignificant value of data, not that the body, it's so sad that we have to with linguistic BS these days of navigating sensitivity, say, oh no, I'm not saying that it was insignificant about that person, I'm saying insignificant correlate, you know, it's like, what, we're, what are we talking about here? about your grandpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, of every, course. yes, yes, human <laughs> life matters, but um, yeah, that's been, that's yeah. been the added yeah. dance. Yeah. But if we're making large-term, large-scale policy decisions and we're looking right. at epidemiology, we're going to have to we think have to about We have to use numbers. We yeah. have to use numbers. Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, n no one in my family has been affected. But, you know, I'm, I, 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 I publicly expressed my sorrow for anyone whose family has been negatively affected by coronavirus and anyone mm -hmm. whose negative family has been negatively affected by a cancer or a heart attack or a stroke or, or anything. Lost like, their left foot to diabetes. Right, or, or any of these things that could have happened. And, I mean, I think that... That's a whole other conversation for a separate podcast is our fear in Western society of talking about death yep. and, and how it's just, you can't talk about death. Well, and it's almost equally as influential, sorry, I know we have to wrap on this topic, but of talking about weight because it's the same shame judgment element I find uh, when I'm trying to speak truth on metabolic health and not all foods fit and all these same, again, medical truths. And it's like, no, I'm not coming at a place of judgment or shaming you on your lifestyle choices, what I'm stating is that statistically, if you continue to eat in this way, if you continue to live this type of lifestyle, this is your disease risk. And it just is. Um, but unfortunately, that's a sensitive topic as well. Sure. All right, before we go further, we're going to have a break and take a mid-roll ad space with Naturally Nourished Supplements. So Naturally Nourished Supplements was started five years ago as a clinician when I knew that the power of food as medicine could be supported by targeted nutritional supplement support. But if I was to use these for clinical outcomes, I needed to ensure that there were products out there that were potent, safe, and effective, yielding clinical outcomes. So we ensure that all of our products do just that and then some. We have third-party testing to ensure that all of our products are clear of mold, toxins, including heavy metals and other contaminants, and that they also have the stated active ingredients of every single lot that goes through our facility. And one area that we might differ a little bit from Dr. Paul on this podcast would be potentially the use of something like our DigestAid product, um, which is a comprehensive digestive enzyme blend that can actually help to enhance your absorption and digestion of some of those plant-based compounds that we've been talking about. Maybe they're not all the devil and we could incorporate them in small amounts or there are certain ones that we can tolerate better than others, but using a digestive enzyme blend can actually help you to get a little bit closer to the root cause of why you're not digesting them in the first place, right? You're also going to break down the particle size. Mm -hmm. So everything that you eat, when you take a digestime prior to the meal, what's unique about Digestate is it has pancreatic enzyme compounds, which help you to break down proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. It also has ox bile, which aids in the emulsification or the gathering of fat. So many people that have had gallstones or their gallbladder removed have trouble with a carnivore, a high protein, or a high fat diet because they're not able to create that bowel formation. They don't have that bile storage tank. So the Digestate enzyme formula through Naturally Nourished has all of these compounds to get your body what it needs. So you take the enzyme prior to meals so that when the food hits your gastric pouch or your stomach, 
The cauldron has all of the chemical compounds to break things down so that there's less inflammatory particles going through your intestinal lining. This helps to debunk the influence like lectins and anti-nutrients that could otherwise destroy your gut. It also optimizes your hydrochloric acid with HCL in here and there's DPP-4. If you are at a restaurant setting and you're not sure that your item is 100% gluten-free or if you choose to indulge in dairy, this reduces the inflammatory properties of gluten and casein, the inflammatory protein in your dairy. In fact, we hosted a party prior to last year's KetoCon for many of the, the keto influencers and some of the keto carnivore people, Danny Vega was one, and Mara, and it was funny, we put the digestive at the front of the table so everyone could take them so that they could indulge in our cauliflower mm -hmm. salad and our avocado green mix salad with the pepita pumpkin seeds that everyone enjoyed and loved. So if your body isn't used to eating vegetable fibers, taking Digestate will ensure that you're better able to tolerate as well as, again, breaking down some of those anti-nutrient irritants for your gut. Yes. Absolutely. So head on over to AllieMillerRD.com to check out Digested as well as our full line of food as medicine supplements. And you can take a quiz while you're over there to find out what supplements might be best for you. Moving beyond pandemic talk or maybe just closing thoughts on this, because I think we could go literally all day and I want to hear about your book. Um, yes. But what would you say is our biggest action step? So how do we become the bison charging into the storm and, as you say, flatten the fear? Like, what do we need to do as, you know, educators in this space and also just as a society? I think it just starts with simple things. Just live like, live like your ancestors did 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And that's going to involve swimming in lakes and rivers, going out and playing with your kids outside, being in the sun, eating food that didn't come in a package. It's as simple as that. I think that that's the case and and then and then also the next level might be understanding your risk and knowing if you have underlying mm -hmm. issues because it, there is some degree of complacency as humans if there's not a, a mosquito biting my leg or a, or a horsefly biting me I'm not gonna really notice that there's something that's causing me pain and so there is a lot of complacence within our society and so I think doing a lab once a year look at your blood work or putting a CGM on putting a continuous glucose monitor on to make sure that your blood sugar, your fasting blood sugar is reasonable and your postprandial blood sugar response is reasonable, that will tell you a ton. So live the way your ancestors did a thousand years ago, or if you can imagine the way they lived 30,000 years ago, do that. Um, but, you know, and, and do just a little bit of testing, a little more screening than the average primary care doctor is going to do. You're going to go to them, you're going to get a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic panel or a basic metabolic panel, but add an HSCRP, a fasting insulin fasting glucose and wear a CGM for two to four weeks and you'll you'll really look under the hood you know as, as humans we 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 think about the maintenance of our cars in a much more detailed way than we do with our bodies mm -hmm. and you know you go to the car you know you go to have your oil change they're gonna look at the wiper fluid and the timing belt and they're gonna refill this or that and they're gonna say oh you got an oil leak here that hose doesn't look good and with humans we just don't do any of that stuff and it's just really simple high-level stuff there's not like a pill for every single thing like there That's would be you replace the windshield wiper right right but <laughs> what do we do with vitamin d in a conventional medical model again not a whole lot yeah <laughs> the, the uh, physician i used to work for would fight against me to run homocysteine levels because she would say i don't have an intervention for that and i would say well we have to support their methylation you know i, I would have to talk to her about biochemical processes in the body but it was because she didn't have a drug mm -hmm. to support elevated homocysteine levels and so, you know, she wanted to do these advanced cardiovascular 
mock-ups of, of blood work and I, I said absolutely you need to have this marker in this is the importance of it. and it's just that, that that's why I think in many cases that's I had why. A, when I was in residency I had attending physicians cancel HSCRPs on patients I would see patients <laughs> with all sorts of things that I want to know what their inflammation is, yeah, is it, right. that's not relevant we're, gonna, we're not gonna run an HSCRP like let's talk Paul about your book the carnivore code. Let's talk about how your personal diet has evolved, and uh, you know, you open in the book with your journey with autoimmune disease. I'd love to hear you unpack a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, already on this podcast, you really can't get away from talking about diet, right? And already on this podcast, we've talked about insulin resistance. We've talked a little bit about autoimmunity. I think that they're connected in a lot of ways, having to do with underlying inflammation. But even before coronavirus, this was the type of thing that I was super fascinated by. What are the building blocks? What are the biggest levers in human health and disease? And just like the medical system's response to coronavirus has been woefully myopic, in my opinion, I think the mainstream medical establishment response to chronic disease is woefully inadequate. And I can say that as a physician who is trained within the mainstream medical model and continues to practice and, and see clients and patients. but you know, really wants to be a part of changing that narrative and making it more toward a root cause. So just as we were talking about the root cause of susceptibility to coronavirus or any infection or the root cause of an underlying issue like insulin resistance that's going to drive susceptibility to multitude of infections moving forward, I think that our diet is at the center. It's, it's a really easily malleable piece. And of course, our lifestyle is important. The water you drink, the relationships you have, human connection, sun, exercise, yes but our diet is a huge piece with our immune system. And so throughout my training, I had always been curious, you know, what diet works best for me? And then using that as a model to scale, could that be relevant for other people as well? And I had a vegan phase many, many years ago on that journey thinking, I kind of, this was before I'd really gone deep into the, the sort of the rabbit hole around nutritional biochemistry and nutrients and understanding where we get our nutrients. And I was kind of bought into the, 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 the sort of, seductive propaganda that meat is bad and cooking foods is bad and I was a raw vegan for seven months. That was probably oh, too. <laughs> I did a four month and that's when I actually was diagnosed with autoimmune disease. I had my biggest flare and um, it's because I, I, I highly attribute that to the raw vegan diet. Most you know, Terry Walls says the same thing that when I interviewed Terry she did a pretty strict low-fat vegetarian diet for 20 years and attributes her multiple sclerosis and autoimmune disease to that. Now, what aspect of that is most triggering to autoimmunity we can talk about as an interesting conversation, but um, what I found with my raw vegan diet was that I lost about 25 pounds of muscle. So I'm, I'm moderately muscular now. I'm not a bodybuilder by any stretch of the imagination, but you can imagine Paul at 140 pounds if I'm 170 right now. Pretty different. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, I had horrible GI symptoms. I had really bad gas. I was working as, as a physician assistant at the time. And I'm embarrassed to say that, that I was working in medicine and I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And I pity the people that I shared an office with because I had such <laughs> bad, it was so bad. And my only hope is that some of them will be listening to one of these podcasts where I can publicly apologize to them <laughs> for all of how, for how bad it was. Was but it as bad as sugar alcohol farts? Because yeah, those are pretty, pretty bad, man. Like when you go to mosquito conferences, <laughs> the erythritol and the I, I've never, bathroom. I've never really eaten I've never really eaten any erythritol or sorbitol, so I don't okay, know how bad. Okay. But, but I'll tell you what, kale farts, broccoli farts, pretty bad. Pretty. Fair enough. Pretty Especially raw broccoli yeah, yeah. and like high volume. Really bad, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, really bad. And something is going on there, and we know that, right? So that was what I took away from raw vegan. Like, I'm really skinny. I'm not strong enough. I'm not recovering in my running. I was ultra running at the time, which is its own sort of 
problem. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I, I included meat back in my diet. I heard a lecture from Jeff Bland through the Institute of Functional Medicine. He was talking about our genetic book of life. And this concept kind of immediately rung true that, hey, humans have eaten meat for our entire evolution as hominids, three to four million years, depending where you place the marker in our, in our lineage of evolution. And that's a key part of our nutrition. And so I incorporated that back immediately, felt better, immediately gained some muscle back, and was on kind of an organic paleo diet. I've always been intentional about my diet for probably the last 20 years. An organic paleo diet for the next 12 to 13 years, and throughout the time, continued to have eczema. And I had eczema when I was a child. I was an asthmatic child. I remember my parents, God bless them, you know, feeding me Theodore, which is theophylline in my, in my applesauce growing up, and forcing me to take inhalers, and my dad's a physician, my mom's a nurse, so I was, I was wildly over-medicated, which probably didn't, didn't help with my own gut microbiome and the diversity there. But I had asthma, and I was atopic. I had my own autoimmune issues growing up, and there was never any talk of what could be causing these. So I continued to struggle with those, even after I included meat back in my diet. And I was eating, you know, general paleo foods. I was not eating seeds, or I was not eating grains, I was not eating beans, and I introduced raw dairy occasionally, took it in and out, but most of the time I was not doing any dairy. And so I thought, I kind of started down that functional medicine paradigm and thought, okay, I really think food is triggering my autoimmunity. So what foods could it be? And I think, well, there's nightshades, so I'm going to cut out nightshades. That didn't really help. I had some really bad flares. And then what about this or that? So I just kept cutting things out. In medical school, I had some very bad eczema flares. I was doing a lot of jujitsu. I got um, really bad eczema on my elbows and knees to the point that it got super infected. It got, became impetigo and... I became septic at one point, it was, it was a mess. So I thought, all right, I'm, I need to cut out more. And I just kept cutting food, plant foods out that I thought could be triggering my own autoimmunity. And it got to the point in residency after I had yet another bad eczema flare after taking some medicinal mushrooms. So I had gotten some like chaga and reishi and cordyceps, or not cordyceps, but some lion's mane. And I did a bunch of those, or I, I took a bunch of those, and I had a really bad eczema flare. Whether that was the trigger or whether it was a combination of things I was eating was... Um, remains to be seen, but I thought, okay, this is crazy. Like, at that point, I was basically doing the mushroom powders, lettuce, avocado, and berries, and then grass-fed meat. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to cut out all the plants. The functional part, medicine part of my brain went crazy because I thought, I must have fiber in my diet. And then what about all these beneficial compounds in plants? I Surely polyphenols are beneficial. I know they are, but I thought, I'm going to think about this outside the box and do a little more research, and I'm going to cut these foods out. And... I went to a diet that was all animal-based. This is a, car a strict carnivore diet. And in the beginning, I actually didn't do a keto. I included some honey, a moderate amount of honey in my diet every day because I was in residency and I think I was stressed and I thought, I don't want to do full carnivore and a keto adaptation at the same time. I had some fear about keto. So, um, but what I immediately realized when I cut out plants was I felt better. And I felt better psychologically. And this is a hard thing to describe for anyone that hasn't been to this point or done this experiment, but I've heard it from other people in the animal-based food community, I just felt more positive. I felt brighter and the, the index that I joke about is how likely I was to honk at someone in traffic or you know, be like the asshole driver. Like that index went way down. It was like I was seeing the world through a different pair of glasses. And I thought, that's really interesting. I didn't expect that to happen. And then within about two weeks, the eczema started to calm down and then went away completely and it hasn't recurred. I've been full carnivore now for two years. So the eczema went away, and I thought, this is amazing. There's something here, and I feel better psychologically. And at that point, I really dove in and started to really understand, like, am I hurting myself? Is my microbiome going to suffer? Do I need polyphenols? Do I need fiber? What about the short-chain fatty acids? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all these other issues that now I've sort of become quite interested in talking about and these alternative paradigms around them. 
But personally, for me, it's been a real eye-opening thing. And my diet's evolved over time. It's not that much different now than it was two years ago, but I don't eat quite the same foods. I went, uh, eventually I let go of the honey and I had about a year and a half of zero carb carnivore. And then recently have done some carbohydrate reintroduction experiments with a continuous glucose monitor, looking at my postprandial glucose responses, looking at fasting glucose levels. Happy to talk about that as well. And I've personally found that including a moderate amount of carbohydrates occasionally as like a cycling seems to work better for me from a fasting glucose and electrolyte perspective. And the carbohydrate that I find uh, to be most beneficial for me is honey, probably for, because it doesn't have a lot of fiber. But what I've found with the reintroduction of carbohydrates, especially fiber-containing carbohydrates, is that my gut just doesn't like fiber. And whether that's the fact that it hasn't had fiber for the last two years, or it really never liked fiber, remains to be seen. But So that's kind of the story. I had this autoimmune disease. I was wildly conflicted about this because it flew in the face of so many things that I'd um, you know, been taught in the functional medicine paradigm. And then you know, I had such an interesting experience that I went into the research and wrote this book, The Carnivore Code. Depending when this podcast comes out, the second edition is now pre-orderable. Cool. The second edition will be out August the 4th, 2020. There's ebook, print, and audiobook. And the first edition did great. It had a lot of sales already, and we're just hoping to get the second edition to much broader distribution. But in the book, I go through all these things that we're probably going to talk about now. Yeah. Let's talk about, in the world of carnivore, first some of the debunking things. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to have you share with my audience uh, the myth of meat causing cancer. Sure. I think my fourth, so this is episode 194, and my fourth uh, podcast episode was called In Defense of Bacon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was, you know, just talking about some of the mismessaging, but I'd love, I thought that was a really eloquent chapter, and uh, I'd love you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, and this is, it's really at the center of this issue because when I talk about the carnivore diet now, I, I really try to make it clear that I'm not advocating that every person on the planet should only eat animal products or should eliminate all plants from their diet. What I am advocating for is twofold. And the first premise is that meat, animal products of all sorts, especially red meat, had been incorrectly vilified by wildly misinterpreted science and are a critical, indispensable part of any human diet if a human wants to be optimal. So I think that if people believe that red meat is bad for them and they reincorporate red meat in their diet, they're, they're winning, especially if it's a, a really good quality red meat, right? And red meat that's not fried in uh, peanut oil or something. So basically incorporating red meat in your diet from the best sources, which is wraps into the regenerative agriculture picture, is critical. It's just, it's undeniably an indispensable part of the human diet. It's been wrongly vilified. And we'll talk about why and how it's been wrongly vilified with this cancer equation. The second premise of a carnivore diet when I talk about it is that plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity. And we can get into this too, and they do. We know that plants have toxins. They're rooted in the ground. And I want people to realize that as plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity, it's going to be important for the individual to understand which plants they may be more or less sensitive to. And for many people, eliminating all plants for some amount of time provides a great blank slate from which to then reintroduce if they want to and to find that they are sensitive to this one and not that one. And, and you know, But a lot of this has to do with our individual variability in terms of CYP450 uh, systems in the liver, these sort of uh, phase one and phase two detoxification systems in the liver with these compounds in plants and the way that our gut flora is looking, the way that our gut is at baseline, how inflamed or not inflamed it may be, how we handle fiber with our microbiome, et cetera. So if we accept that animal foods are really the best foods on the planet, they're an indisp indispensable part of the human diet, they've been incorrectly vilified, and that plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity, and we should think about them in that way, and if we're going to include plants, maybe understand which are more or less toxic in general, and which may be more or less toxic for us, I think that's gonna get people 95% of the way, and there is a, 
I think there's a lot of room for a carnivore-ish perspective, which is really what I advocate for in um, chapter 12 of the book as one of the possibilities for people. And I'm writing a cookbook, which will be out this winter, which is mostly a carnivore-ish perspective, thinking about which are the least toxic plant foods to include in addition to these sort of central animal foods. But back to that first premise, I do think meat has been incorrectly vilified for so many of these, uh, in so many of these ways. And one of the biggest is that it causes cancer. And your listeners will no doubt be familiar with the really large divide between epidemiology and interventional research. And that isn't even an accurate characterization either. It's really interventional epidemiology or observational epidemiology. But just for the sake of colloquial discussion, epidemiology refers to observational studies where there's no real experiment being done. Right. It's just food a records. food <laughs> records, yeah. food recalls being given to people. And so they'll take a group of 100 people or however many people and they'll give them a survey and say, what did you eat for the last 10 years? <laughs> how, many right. times, how many times a week did you eat bacon for the last 10 years? How many times a week did you eat eggs for the last 10 years? How many times a week did you eat red meat for the last 10 years? And then they'll look at those people and they say, hey, look, the people who say that they ate more red meat have more diabetes. Therefore, red meat is highly associated with diabetes. And that's what gets, that's what gets reported in the media. Right. And, and the, the syntax is subtle, and the layperson is easily misled. And it's not fair, and it's the media's fault, because what the media will report is that red meat is associated with a higher risk of X. Heart disease, shorter lifespan, cancer, et cetera. But the key word in there that I want the listeners to be aware of is associated, <laughs> as associated. You will never hear in the press, red meat causes cancer. Mm -hmm. Because they can't say that, because it's never been proven. But they can say red meat is associated with cancer. Well, you know what else? Like, um, there's these, this, this great website, Spurious Correlations. Have you seen this one? No. The number of movies that Nicolas Cage has appeared in per year <laughs> is, is associated with the, was highly associated with the rate of death by violent homicide every year. The, the, the per capita cheese consumption in Wisconsin is associated with um, like drownings in a pool. The, the per capita consumption of margarine in Maine is associated, highly associated, with the divorce rate in the state every year. Does that mean that, that Nicolas Cage is somehow causing people to die deaths by homicide or, or that you know, cheese consumption is associated with drowning or that margarine is associated with divorce? No, it's causing a divorce. No, these are correlations. Right. These are correlations, and yet the media loves correlations. Mm -hmm. And the reason these correlations happen repeatedly is because of the messaging in this Western country. And I'll get around to the meat and cancer thing in a moment, but what have we been told? I think most of your listeners will be aware that the mainstream narrative for the last 60 years, 70 years, since Ansel Keys, since the McGovern Commission, since, you know, since, oh, yeah. since Richard Nixon, has been that red meat and saturated fat are bad for humans, and that it's okay to eat low fat, you can eat as much sugar as you want as long as it's low fat. And that is a very, that is a very pervasive narrative in our culture. You could survey people on the street and offer them a low fat cookie that has lots of sugar and a steak and say, which is better for you? And I think nine out of 10 people would say the cookie. Especially if you add that it has fiber in it. Yeah. Fiber or maybe this whole is a grains. whole grain cookie <laughs> or it's a Ritz cracker, you know, or multi-grain Ritz. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Ooh. Or it's, you know, a little it's, halo effect there. Right. Yeah, multi-grain Ritz cracker or wheat thins or something and say, here's a, here's a grass-fed steak and here's a, which, which, is, which is healthier right. for you. And that's, that's just so wildly wrong, right? I think most people are starting to wake up to that fact, but the mainstream narrative has told us that. So over the last 70 years, 
who has eaten red meat, when that is the pervasive narrative, when that is our conditioning, the people who eat red meat are the people who are the rebels, they're the people who ride motorcycles, and smoke, and drink, and this is obviously kind of a, a caricature, but they're the James Dean types. They're the people who are saying, I like red meat, I don't care. Mm -hmm. They're also gonna do other things that are more dangerous. They're less likely to get colonoscopies or mammograms, they're more likely to smoke, they're less likely to exercise because they're just kind of the rebel type of people. This is what's called the unhealthy user bias. Yes. And, and the reason we know this exists is because you can go to somewhere like Asia and do the same epidemiology. You can look at men and women in Asia and say, how much meat did you eat over the last 10 years? And what you find is completely the opposite of the West. The men who eat the most red meat have the lowest rate of heart disease. I'll repeat that. The men, this is a study of, I think, 180,000 people in Asia. The men who eat the most red meat have the lowest incidence of cardiovascular disease. The women who eat the most meat, lowest rate of cancer. How is that possible? If epidemiology is telling us anything, it's telling us about the narrative of that country. The messaging skewing do, our, yeah. do, do people really believe that, that red meat is good for Asians and bad for Westerners? That's one hypothesis, but I think it's a little bit absurd. Like, right. Do we think our genetics are so different that, that red meat is, is, is preventing cancer in Asian women and preventing heart disease in Asian men, but it's causing it in the US you know, and men and women? That doesn't make any sense. But what we find without much digging is that the narrative in Asia is that if you eat meat, you're affluent, you're rich. You are successful. The successful people eat meat, not the rebels, because Asia didn't have Ansel Keys in the McGovern Commission. Asia had a completely different narrative around meat. So they have a completely different narrative around the health benefits. And so this is the danger of epidemiology. Well, the reason that we think that red meat causes cancer or that we've been told that red meat is a class 2A carcinogen by the WHO, according to the 2015 IARC report, is based on epidemiology. And I go into detail about this in the book, that report is wildly misinterpreted and very poorly done. It was reported in 2015, it's been parroted over and over by plant-based groups which have lots of funding, and then in 2018, the actual manner in which they did the study came out and we learned that out of 400 studies they could have considered for that judgment, they included 14. And of those 14, all of them were epidemiology. They excluded 386 studies from that study, or from that, from that thing, many of which were interventional, many of which were epidemiology, which did not show any association between red meat and cancer, and many interventional studies which did not show any association between bacon or pork or red meat and cancer in both animal, in animal models. Nobody's really ever done, uh, we, there are some interventional studies with red meat and inflammation in humans that we can talk about, and those clearly show that red meat does not cause inflammation in humans, but nobody's done an interventional trial in humans with cancer. Right. They've only done interventional trials with red meat in animals, and they don't cause cancer in animals but they excluded all those, and they only took 14 epidemiology studies. Well, of the 14 epidemiology studies, how many do you think showed an association between red meat and cancer? The minority, meaning that eight of the 14 showed no association between red meat and cancer. And that's just crazy, right there. The majority of the studies that they are considering showed no association between red meat and cancer. Six of the 14 showed an association between red meat and cancer, Five of those six, that association was not statistically significant, meaning that the calculations weren't, they weren't convincing enough. We don't even know if that's just a calculated error. And again, this is epidemiology to begin with, which is confounded by healthy user bias. In only one of those 14 studies was there a statistically significant association between red meat and cancer, and it was done in a Seventh-day Adventist community. Seventh-day Adventists are a religious group that advocates against meat eating in general. So unhealthy user bias is going to be even more pronounced in a community like that. 
this is like a community that, that you are shamed if you eat right. red meat. <laughs> so who eats red meat in a Seventh-day Adventist community? The people who are just completely off the rails. <laughs> they're not, they're not going to be doing anything else healthy or potentially. And if you look at the subgroup analyses, what we find is that those people who were most, where, the, where the red meat was most associated with cancer, the highest odds ratio was found in those who were obese. So the obese people who were Seventh-day Adventists or living in a Seventh-day Adventist community where you get shamed for eating red meat, that was the highest association between red meat and cancer. Do we really, can we just wrap our head around the possibility that those people were a little bit rebellious yes. and, yeah. and potentially <laughs> had some underlying insulin resistance that might have <laughs> confounded things? So this is the difference between correlation and causation, but this shred, this minuscule scrap of evidence is what the mainstream propaganda, the mainstream basic brainwashing around, that, that's, the, that's the only thing that people can point to. When you say red meat causes cancer, that is what people are pointing to. And it is, it is a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. It's a shred of evidence based on a very shaky study, the majority of studies of which do not actually show this. So this is what's so scary, is that when, when you hear someone say red meat is associated with cancer, ask them what evidence they have for that. When I, on the, when I went on the doctor's TV show, you know, they, they wanted to talk over me all the time, but I said to them blatantly, I said, there is not a single interventional study in existence that shows a connection between red meat and cancer, that red meat causes cancer. But there are interventional studies that show that if you increase the amount of red meat someone is eating per day by half a pound, eight ounces, a lot of red meat per day, the CRP, the inflammatory markers, the insulin resistance markers go down. But nobody wants to talk about that. Right. This feels like something we come up against. I feel like every year we have some kind of a debunk of either the red meat myth or saturated fat. And it's never new information that comes out. It's not like a true study that comes out. It's this recirculation of kind of the, the BS epidemiological narrative. It's stuff that's been suppressed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, you know, I was just looking yesterday. There's a study, I think it was done from 1968 to 1973. It's called the Minnesota Coronary Study. It was done on 9,000 people. And they, in one group of people, they increased saturated fat. In another group of people, they increased vegetable oil. And this is 9,000 people. And they were hospitalized, so they followed them over time. I think they were hospitalized on a psychiatric ward for five years. This is finished in 1973. And they found that the people who increased vegetable oil, the LDL went down. But the rate of cardiovascular events went up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure other comorbidities as well. And yeah. Their mental health suffered. Probably, but it wasn't. <laughs> and then saturated fat, the rate of cardiovascular disease went down. The study wasn't published until 1989. And when they asked the authors why they didn't publish it, it was because the results didn't line up with what they fit wanted the to narrative. see. The <laughs> results didn't fit the narrative. And how many people have heard about the Minnesota coronary study? It's just insane. Like it's a, there are multiple studies like this with saturated fat, this is off the topic, but versus vegetable oil, that you can lower LDL with a polyunsaturated vegetable oil, but you'll see an increased rate of coronary artery disease. But nobody wants to talk about that. And the question is, as Dr. Nadir Ali has shared on the podcast, all-cause mortality actually reduces as LDL goes up. So, you know, if the, and that's not the rabbit hole I want to go into in this episode because that would be a whole other com conversation, and I know we'd... Yeah, have fun talking about that. So yeah, what is the biomarker, you're, what's the lever that you're interested in in the outcomes of your study? Or are you looking at the actual incident uh, versus a biomarker that may have a false rhetoric or a false narrative associated within it, right? It's and all the editorializing. <laughs> it's all the editorializing. I mean, that's what's happening with red meat and cancer, just editorializing. Right. And so for listeners of this podcast, when anyone tells you red meat causes cancer, red meat causes heart disease, ask them for the research. Like, what research are you talking about? No one even knows the research. Most people are just parroting something they've heard. It's this zeitgeist. It's this really cancerous 
It's this cancerous zeitgeist and people just repeat things because the media is telling it. It's the same thing we see with coronavirus, right? Let's talk about how meat heals. So what are some of the, you know, our, our big focus in our brand is food as medicine. And so what are some of the nutrients that we look at as focus or key nutrients for, that only meat can offer? And, uh, you know, what deficiencies or areas of, of support do we see from consuming more meat? So many, like three to start with the letter C. So there's creatine, carnitine, choline, and carnosine. And creatine is huge. I mean, you can't get enough creatine eating plant foods. And there are tons of studies now that show, I mean, these are not new studies. These are 20 year old studies showing that if you take someone who's deficient in creatine, a vegetarian or a vegan, if you take vegetarians or vegans and you give them five grams of creatine per day, they get smarter. And if that's not the nail in the coffin for a vegan or vegetarian diet, I don't know what is. Like, I just, it's just, <clears throat> to me, it just defies understanding. But the fact that you can give a vegan or vegetarian creatine and they get smarter and stronger is bonkers. But then there's carnosine, which is a known compound in the body that has antioxidant effects and is involved in sort of balancing the glycation of compounds in our body. There's carnitine. Um, higher levels of carnitine have been associated with lower rates of depression and, and other mental health illnesses. And interventional studies with carnitine have shown promise in depression. And so where do we get these things? They start with C-A-R-N. That's carnal. That's carnal. That's meat. You know, like that has to do with it. That's, that's meat. That's carnivore. And so these are meat nutrients. And then there's carnitine, carnosine, and choline. You know, you can get a little bit of choline in, 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 in plant foods, but you're really not going to get a whole lot, and it's much less bioavailable. And that's not to say, I mean, these are polymorphisms and enzymes that make choline in the human body, like PEMT notwithstanding. So in order to get enough choline, you really must eat animal foods. Mm -hmm. And the best sources are liver. I'm super into organ meats, and we can talk about my love for nose to tail eating we in a will. moment. But, and then, and egg, then egg yolks. Yeah, I mean, and, and these are associated with all kinds of benefits. We know that, that a choline deficiency is going to predispose, predispose someone to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is NASH, or fatty liver, because the body can't package VLDL. The body can't package lipids into VLDL without choline to make phosphatidylcholine to make the membrane of our cells. Mm -hmm. And these are critical nutrients that only occur in animal foods. And that's just the first four. There's also taurine and anserine. There's also B12, vitamin K2 we can talk about. The list goes on and on and on and on. And there are some that we don't even really talk about widely, like peptides that are really only occurring in animal foods. I do want to touch on vitamin K2 for a moment. I'm sure it's something you've spoken about in your podcast. Vitamin K2 is what appears to be the bioactive form of vitamin K. People talk about vitamin K1, which is phyloquinone. Vitamin K2 is menaquinone. It's a collection of menaquinones with different side, side chain links. And they are basically named MK4 to MK11 or MK13. And people will say, oh, you can get vitamin K2 in natto, but that's really only one menaquinone. I believe it's MK7. Mm -hmm. So if you want a full range of menaquinones, you have to eat animal foods. And so if you want to get MK4 to MK13, those only occur in animal foods, as far as we know. And that's a famous study, the Rotterdam study, showing that the, this is an associational study, right? So people will sometimes criticize me and say he criticizes epidemiology when he wants to and then he uses it to his benefit. But I think that's an unfair characterization because I will always admit when I'm talking or writing about epidemiology, I will always say when it is and acknowledge the limitations. And then we have to consider the alternative hypotheses. So the Rotterdam study is an epidemiology study. But what it shows is that those who eat more vitamin K2 have a lower rate of cardiovascular disease and a lower rate of calcific aortic sclerosis. So that's a correlation. But if anyone can come up with a better hypothesis for a causal relationship there, then let me know why higher intake of vitamin K2 would be associated with lower incidence of coronary disease that explains that away. And I think that what we ne then need is 
interventional studies. But I think it's a very clear correlation that's been shown over and over and over. And there's no mainstream media narrative, or there's no narrative that I think would make that you know confounded like I do with healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias on the other end. But vitamin K2 really only occurs in animal foods. And the most striking part of the Rotterdam study for me is that vitamin K1, phylloquinone, is not associated with any of those benefits. Mm -hmm. So when I was on the doctors, they, after the show, it was just ridiculous, they said, <laughs> they said, how can you eat all meat? There's no vitamin K in meat. And I just kind of looked at them and like nearly lost it. I was like, what are you talking about? Are you don't even know about vitamin K2? And they, the, the dietitian there, the physician didn't even know about vitamin K2. They just thought there was no vitamin K1. Because they think about warfarin and leafy greens. Right, I mean, exactly. That's, truly, right, that's right. how my op, that's what they're thinking. That's what they're about, thinking. So. But that's the level of people in mainstream media. That's the level of nutritional education of the <laughs> it stops doctors. There. Yeah. yeah. Be consistent with your spinach and leafy green intake, so that we can dose you appropriately. Warfarin, right? <laughs> and that's vitamin K one. And so, you know, clinically, I think that there's pretty good evidence that humans don't convert K one to K two very well, but we can retroconvert K two to K one if there's even a unique biological role for vitamin K one. That's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down, but. I don't really have much vitamin K1 in my diet, and I'm not dying of a clotting or a bleeding diathesis. I can you don't make, have a lot of bruises. No, I can make <laughs> clotting factors just fine with a majority of vitamin K2 in my diet. But the same cannot be said for people who only consume vitamin K1 and cardiac risk. You will not convert it very well, and Rotterdam and multiple studies show that. So there are so many nutrients, these zoonutrients, that are unique to animal foods. And then there's peptides, too. I mean, people want to, you know, the biohacker types, like my friend Ben Greenfield, want to talk about BPC-157 or LL-37 or thymosin alpha-1, well, there's no thymosin alpha-1 in broccoli. It's in thymus. Mm -hmm. It's in the thymus gland, which you have to eat from an animal, or BPC-157 is in the gastric secretions of a stomach. So you have to eat an animal's stomach, and most of our ancestors did eat animal stomachs. And that, that kind of brings me to like you know my project here in Austin, which is making supplements for people out of desiccated organs. Okay. Because it's so hard for people to get these desiccated organs, right? We'll get into these other these other nutrients. I mean, we could even consider riboflavin to be a zoonutrient in some ways because good luck getting riboflavin from plant foods. But if you want to get riboflavin from animal foods, you really have to eat liver and heart. But not a lot of people can eat enough liver and heart. So what's right. interesting for me and kind of the, the exciting project that I'm working on now is doing desiccated, so low-temperature dehydrated organs, liver, heart, spleen, kidney, pancreas, stomach with BPC-157, thymus. We're even doing a testicle supplement and all kinds of things into pills. So depending when this podcast gets released, the company is called Heart and Soil. People can check it out and you can get these desiccated organ pills if you want to eat nose to tail, but you don't want to eat spleen in your mouth. Spleen in your let's, mouth. Let's that's talk a good about how to eat spleen in your mouth. <laughs> so, or um, maybe a little let's bit Let's start more with liver and yeah, kidneys and heart. Yeah. <laughs> how do we, yes, yes. How do we make it We have a lot of pates and, yeah. and you know bacon meatloaf yeah. and all that on the yeah. blog that incorporates yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, we do rose frozen liver pills yeah. and things Perfect. like that. But what are some of your recommendations or tricks and tips and why is it important? Mm -hmm. How does that balance out the distribution of nutrients versus just eating muscle meat? Because you know, with anything, there can be a clean keto, a balanced keto, a dirty keto. And, and our big thing that when we talk about is carnivore, when we get the question a million times, what do you think about carnivore? It's, is it snout to tail? Mm -hmm. Is it quality sourcing? And are you looking at the root causes of why you didn't tolerate vegetable matter? And that's kind of how we go at it. Sure. Um, so what are the importance of a snout to tail philosophy, nutritionally speaking? It's a, it's a direct sort of segue from what we were just talking about. If you look at where those nutrients are, they're not all in muscle meat. But we've only gone to the butcher and seen ribeyes, New York's, and 
uh, tenderloin. Those are the food groups of an animal. That's how you make an animal, right? There's a tenderloin, there's a ribeye, and if people are really savvy, they might have a flank steak or haunches or if people are hunters, they might know about it, uh, you know, like a different cut, right? But very, or oxtail is like the most exotic we get. But there's all the visceral organs that humans of Western persuasions are kind of grossed out by. Other cultures are quite familiar with this. They eat heart, they eat liver, they savor even things like brain. And we don't have to go that far. That's why we make, that's why it's really cool to make these into desiccated organ pills. But if you really look at the nutrient compartmentalization, riboflavin is not really in muscle meat and neither is folate. So this is my problem with, you know, uh, steak and eggs carnivores and what I would call dirty carnivore is that you're just going to become deficient in riboflavin and folate. And the whole reason you're eating carnivore is to get more nutrients and to, to deal with autoimmune or nutrient deficiency issues. So you cannot, no matter what you're doing, I think even people who are eating plants need to know where their nutrients are coming from. And nutrients like riboflavin, you simply cannot get it from plant foods. You really cannot. It, it's very, very difficult to get it from plant foods unless you're sourcing it from something very specific and eating tons of it. You, it's very predictable deficiency, and um, there are many things like this. And so that's what's so interesting about eating osotail is that when you... If you're eating an animal-based diet, it absolutely is a requirement. It makes sense because if you're eating, if you're not eating dairy, which a lot of people seem to have immunologic reactions to, myself included, where are you getting your calcium? Well, others in the carnivore community just ignore that and say we don't need calcium, and I think that's absurd. Humans need calcium, and we benefit from calcium in so many ways. And as I dug more deeply into this, what I found was that it was so cool to find that there were minerals in in bones along with a calcium that were deficient in other carnivore diets. Boron, manganese, silica, these are all in bones. And there are other growth factors in bones. And so that, that, that paradigm is repeated over and over, that if we're, the more organs we're eating, we're getting these kind of unique nutrients. Now, some of them overlap, right? There's heme iron in muscle, there's heme iron in spleen. But spleen has specific peptides, splenopentin, tupsin, that are very beneficial for humans that we never even think about, right? So this is the idea that there's this wide array of zoonutrients that are distributed throughout the animal that we don't even, we're just- We haven't tapped. We haven't tapped and we don't think about. At a, at a much more basic level, in terms of getting nutrients that we even know about, folate, riboflavin, all that stuff, that's critical to eat nose to tail as well. And things like heart and liver will give you uh, riboflavin. Liver will give you folate. Liver's a real kind of master organ in general. Kidneys are pretty high in folate. Vitamin K2 as well. Kidneys are a good source of riboflavin. So, but those are all absent or not as well represented in muscle meat. So eating the whole animal, as our ancestors would always have done, really fixes all those things and it makes it so much easier. Now, if people are eating plant foods, they may get a little more diversity, but if you do the, the examination, which is probably onerous for most people, you'll find that a lot of the plant foods don't have much of the stuff either. So that's why eating the animal foods is the easiest way to get these organs. And your original question was, how do you do it? I'll get to that. And, and how much that. is enough? Yeah. yeah, how do you do it and how much is enough, right? right? So that, I think that's a good question. Yeah, so I think that um, having culturally become divorced from these, these, these foods, that's kind of what we're hoping to do with the cookbook is help people understand this is how you might prepare spleen. Like, have you ever seen a spleen? Have you ever seen a spleen? No, no. Nope. They're beautiful. <laughs> they're amazing. They're just, they're really rich. They're, I don't even know how to describe it. They're thin and they're very rich and dark and they're, they definitely taste gamey. So a lot of people are not going to be used to that. So the... The easiest ways for most people are to grind the organ meats into hamburger. So there's a lot of these paleo grinds, these organ grinds from White Oak or Belcampo. I'm sure there's places in Austin that are doing this. I was going to say, have you been out to Rome Ranch? Yeah, Rome is amazing. Force uh -huh. of nature meats. Force of nature, mm -hmm. right? The ancestral blend. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And you can get it that way. 
Um, as you're saying, making frozen liver pills is great. Or I do liver shooters where, and you know, this is all kind of like approach, approach it well. <laughs> you know? You could, I know, it's like, mm, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> delicious liver shooters. Um, but you know. Well, it's like an oyster shooter, I'm yeah. sure. I can do yeah, a shooter. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't put it in a shot glass. I just, I thaw the liver and I put a small amount of liver in my mouth and I swallow it down with water. So cost a benefit of hot sauce. Gotta ask it. Probably, probably not a good thing because it has so many of these capsicum plants in it that are going to irritate the gut. And I really think those are some of the worst plants to eat are the capsicums, the nightshades. They've been shown in experiments to, to increase the transepithelial electrical gradient across the epithelial layer in the gut. So I think that nightshades are going to cause leaky gut in a lot of people. Lemon shooter? Line. Probably better. <laughs> Probably way better. I mean, you know, getting the liver. There's got to right, be a right. there's got to be a lineage of to yeah, get yeah. this in in this yeah. form yeah. for people that need something to chase their palate. Yeah. yeah. What's the good, better, best? Yeah. And I think that that's where the, where the cookbook will come in. We have stews and pates cool. that incorporate okay. a lot of these things, and we're making a lot of the recipes with organ meats uh, to make it easier for people. But that's also the really the great you know as much as we're against pills, I don't think of desiccated organ pills as pills. I think of them as food. It's I'm taking a food. I'm low temperature dehydrating it and putting it in a capsule so that you can eat it. And the capsule's even made of collagen too. So that's, it's just the easiest thing for most people. But if you don't want to do that or you can't, that's probably the, the, the easiest way, but I would say the last way to do it. Get the real thing if you can. Make a pate, grind kidney into your organ grind or grind some heart in there. Heart is actually a pretty approachable organ for it most is. people. Yep. It really, we have like skewers on the yeah. block yeah. and stuff because it's a good meaty texture. Mm -hmm. Chicken heart's easy mm -hmm. to eat. That's easy. Liver is probably the next one. So it goes heart, liver, and you could do liver pills or um, the sh liver shooters or grind. You can do liver grind into your into your uh, hamburger. And people actually, a lot of people actually like liver if it's made just kind of seared on the grill. Right. Yeah. Reasonable. Even my older clients come around to it real quick. They're like, oh, I used liver to do that onions. all the time. Yeah. Liver and onions. It's very standard. And like, okay, just don't order it at like Luby's because then quality Because <laughs> then it's fried yeah. in peanut oil. Exactly, exactly. That's I'm not talking that kind of liver. Yeah, but. yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's what you yeah. yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. And then beyond liver, you know, kidney, spleen, pancreas, it's probably best to either, you know, get it in a recipe or do a stew or something. Uh, thymus and pancreas are often made in sweetbreads. Mm -hmm. I know Anya from Belcampo has some great recipes for sweetbreads. Those are pretty doable for people. But some of the more exotic ones, I mean, we actually have a recipe in the book with testicle. Okay. But... I mean, it's it's might just eat it in a pill. Yeah, you, you and Ben can stay there. I, I feel like that's like a compartmentalization <laughs> that I'm not sure I need to go into. But the bones um, are important. I do yeah, think the sure. bones are important, and the bone broth is the other piece yeah. of that. I was that people say connective missed. tissue. I yeah. wanted to hear. Connective yeah. tissue yeah. is super important, and that goes back to what you said earlier with glycine and collagen mm -hmm. and glutathione. I have a I have an instant pot. It's amazing. I put bones in there. I put the pressure cook function on. Four hours later, I have bone broth, and I can eat the bones if they are trabecular bones. So the joints, so there's a long bone here in the humerus, but at the joint, there's trabecular bone, which is soft. And when you make that in, on a bone broth, you can actually eat that part of the bone. And it doesn't taste bad at all. I actually have really grown to like bones or the, the crunchy parts of bones. One of my friends, an anthropologist, Miki Bendor, just sent me a paper the other day um, that showed evidence, I think from archeologic sites, that humans were chewing on the ends of bones. It makes sense, right? You kill an animal, you don't know when you're gonna get the next right. wildebeest or Auroch, which is probably the ancestral relative of a cow or a bison. You're going to eat everything you can. So the long bone might be hard, but you're going to break the bone open. You're going to get the marrow. You're going to get the end pieces. And, and though we think of those as gross, 
that's reasonable and I want people to be able to get there gradually, but I also want to ask the question, are there unique nutrients in there that we can't get other places that could enhance our life? Which is why the, the, the pills are a great thing or the cookbook is a good idea too. Awesome. And how much, as we're wrapping up, how much of the diet of the animal matters and the genetics of the animal? Because I think that's an important point as well. We're talking about ancestral cultures. Right. We're talking about, you know, wild versus the, the genetics of now cows in a confined animal farm versus those that are, you know, eat, roaming free and are more like heirloom varietals or whatnot. Right. The genetics haven't been as um, hybridized, if you will. I mean, what certainly. are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think that there's a, a spectrum within the meat world? Sure. And, and, and we're talking about like things like petri meat, petri dish meat of making meat in a lab. Is that is that carnivore radical approved or that's like, whoa, too science in there? No, Where's no, no, the no, line? No, no, Where's no, no, the buck? No. I definitely think that you want to eat as close to a real wild animal as you can. And I'm, I'm partial to ruminants because they eat as close to their species appropriate ancestral yeah. diet as they can. But you can get a chicken... And how many chickens eat a, a species-appropriate diet if they're fed corn and soy? It's much harder. Now, now the concern there is that when you say that, I don't want people to think that they can't do this diet, that they have to get the best quality meat. I think that you can, we, we've talked a lot about kind of stair-stepping or a little bit of a gradual approach. So you get the best meat that you can, but yes, Rome Ranch, Belcampo, White Oak Pastures, these regenerative farms are the best place to get your meat for so many reasons. And then if you can hunt your own meat, that's going to be great too. And if you're eating chicken or pork, you want that to be eating its species-appropriate diet. How much pork eats a species-appropriate diet? Like almost none. You know, I saw, a great, um, yeah. I saw a great point by my friend Anthony Gustin this week saying that if you look at the amount of linoleic acid or the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids in most pork today, it's 10 to 20 times an ancestral varietal over wild hog. And so that's not an animal we should be eating. You know, you should not be eating a pig that has 10 times as much PUFA and it's fat as a wild, you know, as a wild monogastric pig would yeah. have. It's probably not a great idea for humans. It's not an ancestral pig. And, and that could affect us absolutely. And there's all this nuance here. But I also at the same time don't want it to be undoable for people because I want them to be able to take some step in the right direction toward that. And I think that um, hopefully that, that path is clear. Let's then unpack like a typical day of food. I think that's like the question on everyone's mind. Yeah, and, and that's the oh, question actually yes. that I close we every close episode with. with a guest is what is, as dietitians, what is your 24-hour yeah. recall? So yesterday was Thursday. From when you woke up to when you went to bed, what went in your mouth? Yeah, so I eat breakfast and early lunch. I don't eat dinner, so I do time-restricted feeding. And uh, over the last few months, I have been experimenting with reincorporating carbohydrates as honey, so I'll talk about that too. Now, whenever this question gets asked, I think it's important to give the caveat that the way I eat, which I've detailed in videos on my YouTube channel and social media, is not the way that everyone needs to eat. I find the organ meats to be pretty easy to eat and palatable just as they are. But again, it's more, more difficult for some people to do that. So I'm eating nose to tail, animal-based diet, two meals a day. Uh, I have found that for me and most of my clients, about one gram of protein per pound of body weight works well. So I'll eat about a pound and three quarters of meat throughout the day, which means I'll eat a little bit less than a pound of meat for breakfast and a little bit less than a pound of meat for, quote, lunch or dinner. And that's from a grass-fed, it's usually from White Oak or Balcampo. Right now I'm eating stew meat because it's leaner, it's really affordable. I can get stew meat from uh, White Oak or Balcampo for 10 bucks a pound. And people will sometimes criticize me and say, I could never eat that diet. It's $120 a day for all these ribeyes you eat. And I don't even eat many ribeyes anymore. I'm mostly eating $10 a pound, grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative stew meat. I'll have egg yolks. I don't eat the whites. And then I'll have organs. And, and then I'll have about, I would say between 70 and 100 grams of honey 
throughout the day. And are you adding to the stew meat like tablespoons of tallow or lard? or So you're just eating it pretty lean. Mm-hmm. Stew meat's pretty lean. Yeah, I'm eating stew meat pretty lean. And you're just dry searing? I miss how you cooked it. I'm sorry. So I, I've actually been blanching it recently. It's an okay. easy, there's, there's no polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons formed in that way. And I've done experiments, you know, do I feel differently? You could dry sear it, but I'll just take a little bit of water. Or what I do now is I take bone broth that I made the night before, and I boil the bone broth, and I'll throw the stew meat in for a minute or 30 seconds, and then I pull it out. And I eat it pretty darn rare. And then I'll drink bone broth. I'll eat some bones. And I'll salt it with Redmond real salt. And then I'll eat some organ meats and some honey. And that's my diet, two meals a day. And, and, the, the and how much honey? I'm sorry, I missed that. About 70 to 100 grams a day. Okay. Yeah. And I've done a CGM episode, a continuous glucose monitor episode. People can see you know, what my blood sugar does when I do that. And I talk about the, sort of this concern that within keto communities we've gotten a little too concerned about a blood sugar spike that's totally physiologic and normal and it you know it usually spikes from about 75 to 120 and comes right back down within the hour there's no postprandial lag the fasting blood sugar is around 75 and there's really no evidence of insulin resistance developing there or in my blood work after eating honey on a daily basis for now a couple of months so i just don't think that the narrative that that all fructose causes insulin resistance is, is true and there's some nuance there as well but that's a whole other rabbit hole to that go is, down. That is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again I did so I did a year and a half of strict carnivore and what I found for me was that it was great and I had a lot of trouble managing my electrolytes doing straight zero carb for a year and a half consistently and I think a lot of people I work with run into the same thing and we get so stuck and I think I may have contributed to this with my own messaging for many of these people but they say I'm getting palpitations or I'm getting cramps. What do I do? I can't manage my electrolytes. And I say, just add some carbohydrates back. And they say, won't I get fat? Or right. won't I get, we ins- get really myopic. Yeah, it's, yeah. This is good. This is doctrine. Don't, don't do all, all carbs are bad. Right. Yeah. And I say, no, 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 that's not the way it works. I mean, and there's more nuance here. And I think that for most people, the problem is the consumption of processed grains, processed sugars, processed vegetable oils, and the overconsumption of fat and carbohydrates together, which is really only something that's going to happen if you're eating a processed food. I do think that what you'll see if you do zero carb for a long time is you will just get very deeply entrenched physiologic glucose sparing. And I've been very clear this is not insulin resistance in the same way that pathologic insulin resistance develops in diabetes. You won't have a high fasting insulin and you really won't have a, a fasting glucose that's massively high or a postprandial glucose. You might fail a glu- oral glucose tolerance test that people confuse. And that's yeah. what we always say because with a lot of prenatal people, when they're doing a keto diet or they're doing a long-term low-carb diet, it's like, yeah, be mindful that you might fail that delicious yeah. beverage that you should opt out of you and instead do a CGM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's not indicative. I'm just, I'm just identifying that that's not indicative of insulin resistance. You know, It's um, not. It's, it's, it's not. a foreign substrate in your body that your body says, what the hell is this? <laughs> and that's interesting physiology to talk about, that if we do ketogenic diets for, I don't, I'd have to think about how long, I'm not sure how long it would take for someone but our body does start to refuse glucose at the level of the muscles and spare it. And I think that that's probably something that's good in the short term and that we should cycle in and out of. And I do think, I just think that our ancestors would have gotten honey or a fruit every once in a while. I don't think it would have been the majority of their diet. I don't think we were herbivores. I don't even really think that 50% of our diet was coming from plant foods. My suspicion is that they were just fallback foods or occasional seasonal foods. But I do think the cyclic nature of it makes it a lot better physiologically. And it just, I mean, I hear this all the time now. I'm, palpita- I'm getting palpitations and it's like, just need a few, it just solves it immediately, just adding some carbohydrates back. I just think for people who are long-term, strict low-carb or very low-carb, you're just it's very hard to manage all the electrolytes. Your body dumps so much sodium, it's tricky. Now, sure. this isn't to say that it's not valuable, and I think that when you're coming from a place of insulin resistance, it can be super valuable to go low-carb. And there's a very, there's a nuance here, right? Because within the literature, 
they'll define low carbohydrate diets as less than 25% of your carbohydrates from, right. from carbs, right. right? So I'm pretty, I'm even getting 70 to 80 grams of carbohydrates a day, I'm still low carb, low carb. right? I'm getting <laughs> lower like, carb than low carb in yeah. the mainstream. <laughs> I'm eating multiple tablespoons of honey and it's low, it doesn't right. seem low carb to me at all, but so there's the nuance, right? There's a big difference physiologically between that and zero carbohydrates. And I think that if people are struggling with it, then just adding a little bit more carbohydrate occasionally and watching can really change the way the body manages a lot of that electrolyte balance. Awesome. So the book is called Carnivore Code. You are on the second edition. Where can all of our listeners and viewers find you, engage with you, and um, also drop the name of your new co company that is going to be making ancestral supplements? So the, um, the book is at thecarnivorecodebook.com. So the second edition is published by HMH, which is awesome. It's out in Mifflin. We're gonna have much broader distribution. People can get it anywhere: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart. Super excited about. Congratulations! Yeah, I'm super excited about kind of getting it much broader distribution. All of my social media handles are at CarnivoreMD, and my um, the supplement company that we're creating to help people sort of get more organ meats. Uh, it's sourced entirely from regenerative agriculture sources. They're grass-fed, grass-finished organs. Is called Heart and Soil. So this website is HeartAndSoilSupplements.com. Cool. Right on. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Thanks Again, thank me. you for shedding light in all of the uh, media mayhem. And I've loved your hashtag flatten the fear. And um, thank you for sharing your perspective on optimal diet and living radical. I think that it is going to provoke a lot of thought in our listeners. And that's what we're all about is critical thinking and N equals one and doing things with your body being the guide of what's right for you. I love that. Thanks for having me on. And it's I think it's great to challenge our paradigm and kind of think outside the box a little bit. So if the ideas are challenging for people, that's good. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Naturally Nourished podcast. We're really passionate about bringing you cutting edge solutions to whole body health using food as medicine. Uh, we want to share some closing thoughts on the carnivore diet and omnivorism and vegetarianism and kind of where we find a Venn diagram, if you will, of overlap within our households and our own personal experiences. Totally. So while a therapeutic carnivore diet could definitely have its time and place, and we, as we stated in the episode, use this diet clinically, especially with IBD or inflammatory bowel conditions and other autoimmune disease to really get and drive remission, I think in our personal lives and, and the lives of our clients, we really enjoy the diversity that plant compounds bring and the flavors and texture variants. So I think there's a time and a place for carnivore I don't think we'll be going carnivore anytime soon, personally. <laughs> Most definitely. I know that if I'm looking to cut for a photo shoot mm -hmm. and get you know rapid body fat loss, that that's a great tool. And as you said, a tool for reducing inflammatory bowel. But even with inflammatory bowel conditions or belly bloating or someone that doesn't tolerate vegetable matter, we as functional medicine dietitians want to understand the root cause of why you aren't tolerating. So is it dysbiosis? And do we need to look into the beat the bloat cleanse? Or is it gut permeability? And we need to really layer in that bone broth, that gelatin, that GI lining support, repair the gut, and then provide an elimination reintroduction of produce to see what plant matter is best tolerated for you. We always want to make sure that you do have the phyto compounds to support detoxification and those antioxidants that we see really well supported by literature. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, if you enjoy, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, we'll see you over next week. Thank you 
for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.